this is Mackenzie Kim and not your normal host Eugene Kim the tables have been turned on him yet again and he has been interviewed for the second time for this podcast on death in which death uh, questions about death are answered to the four prompts I am before I die I want when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. So it's been about three years since we originally sat down with the uh, dreamer of this podcast uh, and for his original interview. And you can really hear how his answers have changed um, in the last, last three years. Especially um, since actually being physically close to death and since being physically very close to life uh, with the birth of his son. First, we'll kind of look back on uh, Eugene Eugene's weekly reflections. Uh, it can be found on the Education of a Physician on Amazon um, and also on his website, eugenehkim. Last week he wrote, or this week, today, uh, he published uh, on psychiatry and neurology in which he reflects upon a neurologist teaching him a little bit about his uh, practice of psychiatry or how to look for um, opportunities uh, with all of his patients, regardless of how they present. Um, so uh, that can be found, like I said, at eugenehkim, along with interviews for this series on death. So back to Eugene. Our first interview was in June of 2016. We were sitting under a great giant oak tree uh, with my parents' chickens pecking and crowing in the background. And this interview is no less noisy uh, with our son Junsu cooing, crying, our, our dog Honey snoring and um, chewing on something. <laughs> and the fire crackling here in our Coopersburg home. Eugene's answers, as I kind of alluded to earlier, have really been colored by his experiences in the hospital and at home, in which his life has been touched by death and touched by life. They have become, I would say, a little bit more practical and down-to-earth, realistic, um, less... Um, uh, ideologic, less heady, um, but no less thought-provoking or wonderful. And we really talk about a lot, uh, ranging from being indoor humans with hopes that someday that might look a little bit more ape-like than it does today, to when dolphins might potentially rule the world, and all kinds of, quote, wackadoodle shit, end quote. Um, actually, Eugene said kind of one of the more quotable things I've ever heard, which is the most fundamental expression of our sovereignty is the way we move ourselves. And I think that that is a really beautiful reflection of Eugene and the purpose that he puts into his life, um, whether it be creating this podcast, writing, writing his weekly reflections, really enjoying his son, his dog, 
moving his body outdoors with intention, uh, all the things that he, he does, um, really wonderful reflections of that sovereignty that he enjoys and, and practices uh, moment to moment. Well, with that, um, I will step out of your ear holes and let this transition. Um, a note on the format, so like I said, our, our little one, Junsu, you can hear him, the dog, you can hear her. Uh, and this, this first uh, hour and a half or so, maybe a little bit under, will be this recording that we did on the 25th of January this year um, and uh, a little bit after that you should be able to or about an hour and a half after you could listen to his original interview uh, with that grab your tea grab your coffee grab your water um, sit down move Stand, lay down, however you want to enjoy this. Enjoy the musings of Eugene Kim on death. So today is the 25th of January. We are sitting next to the fire with a fussy baby and a snoring dog. And by we, I mean my lovely partner, Eugene Kim and I, Mackenzie Kim. <laughs> and we are about to visit <laughs> the concept of death through the four prompts. Eugene. Do you mind explaining the four prompts to the audience? I am. Before I die, I want. When I die, I want. And after I die, I want. How do you finish the first prompt, I am? I am a student. I am a, I guess, I think a recorder and a gamer. <laughs> Those are very different answers from your first interview. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's dig into this a little bit. Let's start with, if you don't mind, a uh, student. Student is uh, straightforward. I think I, during the first interview, I talked about my, my love of, of uh, being a student of movement, and that was when I was much closer to be, having been a coach. And I still think I'm a student of movement, but I think far less um, in a communal setting. Now it's much more of an individual myself and watching and trying to foster a sense of movement and development in this little guy, uh, Junsu. I think it's... Um, it's changed my relationship with movement, or I, I'm trying to understand it on a very different level, like a much more primitive understanding of movement, like you can't even roll over yet. Um, and so like I, can, I might be able to lift these barbells, and I might be able to do cool stuff on a slack line, but 
I think it's much more important to figure out how do I get somebody else started much earlier. Because um, I can take it to like, I, like, you know, I started later in life in terms of really understanding what movement is and how much further could I go, how far can I go is, is a question, but then how far could someone else go when they start so much younger? Um, so that, there's a, that student of movement part. So as you were talking, you were talking about being a coach. Um, and I guess my question is, how is it different trying to imbue these principles in Junsu and coaching others? Um, there's a, I think with others, like, in, with, like, adults, and, I mean, even with high schoolers, I would still consider them, like, compared to June, uh, adults, um, it's much more of a, uh, it's like, almost like a, taking a lead, and walking somebody through an experience. Um, and there's only so much like reconfiguration or reconceptualization you can give to somebody um, in that coach role of like how they experience the world. Um, whereas for June, it's much less of a, I'm telling him how to move, I'm telling him proper form. And it's more of just creating a, an environment that is very pro movement. And I think that's, the, the experience of doing that is very different than one I've ever been exposed to, so it requires that I think of the world differently so that he can experience it differently than I did. Um, so there's much less talk, there's much less talking, there's much more modeling, and there's much more um, just thinking on a very primal level of like, how do I make an environment now and in the next year that he will be able to move well in. So I guess that, that was, um, in asking that question, one of the other things that is very different is that I believe one of the things that you were previously was a coach. That was one of the things that you considered yourself and that's completely removed now. And so I guess I'm also looking to see if you don't consider that this act coaching. No, I don't think so. It's, um, just because there's so little, uh, like, they're, like, the feedback loops are different. They feel different. I feel like it's much more of a, like, I'm learning from him as much as he's learning from me. And that's a very different experience as a coach when a coach, you know, I'll learn a lot from people and like different ways to approach people but there's very little learning about like technique and um, like fundamental movement patterns whereas from June like especially once he starts standing and, and being able to pick things up it's just a, it'll be very fascinating just to watch him um, and then to interact with him as he's learning it's just there's so much more I feel like there's so much more to learn from a baby than there is from uh, uh, a room full of CrossFit athletes. So what are some of the things that you've learned from June? So far, it's, um, pooping is really hard. <laughs> that is a movement that is very difficult when you have not quite had your GI system developed yet, as you can hear. Um, I think, uh, like, learning, 
<laughs> just learning connections, like the way that, like the things that you see are and the things that you move, in, like in terms of your hands, uh, that that's connected is that's watching him start to develop that um, that conceptually is very interesting, and then also it's just like uh, with him, it's like movement should be really fun. It shouldn't be a chore, at least not for a long, long time, and. So when I move with him, I try to make it's it's it should be fun, you know. There, it sh you shouldn't be crying when I'm moving him, you know, <laughs> unless he's pooping, and then I guess that's just that's what we have to do because he's pooping. Um, but it's it's very different, and so it's also changed the way that I look at movement. It's like I should enjoy it, um, you know. There's some level of grind, but it's like if I grind, it should be like I should be enjoying it at least, um, just because there's not much room anyway for joy so it's like we might as well make sure it's with with the way that we move our bodies like the most fundamental expression of our sovereignty is the way we move ourselves that was really beautiful <laughs> is there anything else that you are a student of other than movement um i'm almost no longer a student of medicine um, in the formal sense of being enrolled and paying tuition. Um, and being a student of medicine is weird because entering psychiatry, it's like a very red-headed cousin of medicine, of the rest of the field of medicine. Here, I'll about some. The poop is strong. Moving around a little bit. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. So... Um, yes, I'm a student of medicine, um, much less so than I think I was before. Um, I'm, I'm interested in medicine right now, like in terms of like, you know, within the medical world, medicine means internal medicine, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm much less a student of medicine because, um, with med, like, it's like I'm just less interested in like medication, certain med, like it's just, uh, it's for other people. And so with psych, it's like I'm just trying to get into, like, my little world of psych um, and just waiting for that time. And even then, I'll still be a student of it, but it's much more of a, I think there's much more, and getting to a point where it's like, let's talk about um, mastery of it. Like, just this, the, the, the idea of mastering, like, the art of conversation and the, like, psychiatric interview and just being able to connect with people and, and empathize with them so you can help them more. Um, and I think that with that, our art of conversation is it's not something that I'm learning too much from peers or even attendings at this point. Like I'm learning the, the minutia of like how to do this and like, what are the, like, what things should I watch out for with this medication? And that's much more of like a rote memorization, but not like a skill. Um, and I feel like I'm going to be learning it for myself, um, the skill of, of psychiatry, and uh, it'll just be very interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'd consider myself, for, I don't know how much longer I'll consider myself a student of medicine, because, you know, it's very different psych versus family medicine, um, where family medicine, there's just so much to learn. There's too much to learn. Um, where psych, it's just such a very small slice, um, but I think within that small slice, there's so much mastery to be had and to, to make. So if you're not getting that, that level of mastery from your peers or from um, 
we'll even say mentors in, in the psychiatric field or in the medical field, where are you getting that mastery? Mm. I think that's why I've talked about movement first, because it's much more fun. <laughs> I think there's a lot more, um, a lot more fun to be had there. Um, and I think I'm just kind of like figuring it out for myself on like where where can I find that mastery, especially within the medical psychiatric world. Um, just because there's a lot that I don't necessarily agree with, but this is these are the systems that are set up in place, and the way insurance bills and the way the hospitals build these psych wards. It's just very unfortunate, and so there's there's just there are very few avenues that I can experiment with other than the way that I interact with a, a patient right in front of me, and um, I just don't see very very good models um, that have impressed me about how to interact in that way. So I'm just sort of building it on my own, and I know that I could learn a lot more faster were I to find mentors that could teach me well. But um, I think that there's something to be said for being the guy in the woods figuring something out and then you c and then teaching some other people. Um, so um, whether or not I'm able to show other people how like different ways to interact with their patients, I think that's going to be something that'll be very cool. Um, especially as a resident, I'll be able to teach medical students and um, I think that'll be a very interesting way to sort of spread things than before. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else to your student prof? Mm. Parenthood? <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> Parenthood is weird. Uh, especially for the, the male or masculine partner. Um, especially at this stage when he's not really able to talk or really even move that well yet. Um, it's very, very interesting. So it's a lot of patience and a lot of learning how to negotiate stuff with the partner and um, I think that the wider culture has failed us and myself um, in that, that we have very little support from the from other from our neighbors and we have support but I think that the the the, the we we are living in higher densities of humans than ever before However, we've also we're living in greater isolation than ever before, and there's, that's a great failing of this culture at large. And so, like uh, you know, this kid should have a lot more kids around him his age, and this kid should also have a lot more parents, like allo parents, like people that help and also breastfeed him, and that also really love and support him uh, throughout his entire life. And that's not happening, and we have to make that through our, like using our fingernails and. Uh, scrape together and people have to sacrifice in order to do that when there are just so many people around like within a square mile that could probably help us but it's um, we have to figure out how to do it on our own and to try to like you uh, you know pay for services I think that there's just a large I think um, being a student of parenthood is understanding how um, this culture has failed um, failed on very many levels There's a lot that you could <laughs> dissect there. Yes. So, um, I guess the direction I'll take it then is, and I think you kind of already started to answer, but what do you then envision in the perfect world for 
Junsu for any child? Um, I think, uh, 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 <laughs> decreased property rights, <laughs> I think, uh, um, more, more communal living and shared spaces, um, I think, you know, breaking down a lot of weird sexual mores that we have, um, and also, like, what, who, raises a, a child and who who is a parent um those kinds of questions it's really i think that like envisioning and creating a, a perfect society in my head is one thing but also like ways that i could have a more like in this culture tweak things to at least move it in a direction that i think is more um beneficial for all um is another and i think that having uh like Developing like a little cloister of people nearby and, and relationships and so little webs so that we can support each other um, is really important and um, not just reaching out to the people that we like and that like us but also understanding that these are that um, you know sort of like you can't really choose your brother-in-law I, I don't you don't get to choose your neighbors but I think that both of those are equally important relationships that should be respected and and you know you kind of move beyond just the superficial like I don't like you so I'm not going to talk to you you know that kind of thing um just just a lot more commitment to the both proximity and the relationships is, is um something that I think would really benefit anything else that you're a student of no I don't think so not yet. <laughs> the next answer that you had was that you are a recorder. Yes. What does that mean? Um, it does not mean I am a flute-like instrument. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That was a dad joke, and that was almost a mom joke. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> um, I... There's, a, like, a friend of mine, I think what I also, like, another word that I was going to use is, like, a documentarian. Um, just because I like recording things. I like recording conversations, like this podcast, um, and I like writing, um, and I think those are both ways of recording. Um, and so I just like keeping a record of things, because uh, life is a very psychedelic experience, and it's very easy to forget what life was like five years ago, um, or 50 years ago. And without a written or record, without some sort of recording to note that, it's very hard to understand um, where we've come from and where we're going to go to, and just how much possibility there is for radical change in the future. Like, if you don't look back at all just to see, like, oh, wow, well, things are really different now than they were 10 years ago, then you don't understand how much more different in, can things be in 10 years. What are some of the changes that you've seen through the course of your recordings, either in yourself or in, um, I guess, your experiences through the, the recordings? Mm, I think I've gotten better at recording. Um, I just the, just like for the podcast itself, like I've gotten better at interviewing. Um, I have a very different idea of what does the recording mean. Um, you know, with some of the interviews that I've done, uh, some of them have... <coughs> had greater value than I had ever imagined. Um, like for with the law of karma, with the car accident, 
um, a few like a few months after the interview, um, and it's just seeing all of her family and friends flock to the interview um, as a way of like hearing her. Um, because the other thing that I've noticed is people don't record themselves. Um, that there are very limited ways that the average person records themselves, so that such that when they something happens like a car accident, they die, whatever the ways that they're recorded are, are just in the, the memory of people, and um, that's not something that can be shared or, or, or really um, reflected on except in, in like fleeting moments of memory. Um, and so being able to have something that's not, not necessarily like the everything, but just like, oh, this is just a very interesting way to capture the essence of this person um, for, for future reference. Um, so like you know even even Alana she had a lot of recordings and she had a lot of art but it was I just think it was very interesting that you know this, this inter the interview resonated with a lot of people and so um, these interviews have changed in their value like uh, when we did your interview it was we were very much like not sure exactly what's happening you know we were very like. Uh, not wanting to put labels on it quite yet, that kind of thing. Um, and then when we did my interview, I was, we were very much like, oh, we're in a committed thing and we're kind of going places, we're not sure where, um, we haven't taken step one yet, like it's just very, a very different place and then now we're, we had a baby and dog and we lost a cat and um, we moved, it's just like a lot of stuff has happened and just documenting the, the time, this, the the space between those those data points is very interesting. And then future ones, who knows? I guess, is there any way that your practice of recording has changed? Mm, not really. I mean, just in different different media forms. Like I used to journal. Um, I had I I still love these little journals that uh, like handwritten journals that I had from. Uh, when I went abroad to Egypt and Korea uh, during college for like a couple weeks here and there. And also when I went to boot camp for the Marine Corps um, uh, at, off the Buchanan School, uh, just like reading my little like kind of in, like drunk in the experience moments, like just like totally enveloped in what was happening to me at that time. Um, I think look, rough, like looking back and just seeing how in it I was and how little pers like greater 10,000 foot ex perspective I had was really interesting um, and taking that to now like I have my, my formal like weekly reflections and uh, I know that I've changed a lot in like the structure and like the tone of what I've write in, written about um, but I think that the fact that I've continued to write about it is uh, or continue to write weekly is just really cool and I'm um, you know, I'm planning to keep going with it, and I don't know who will read it or like what value it has for anyone else. But I think for myself, it has very interesting value um, because I know looking back on like when I was in boot camp and just seeing how tired I was and sad I was and lonely I was at certain points, it was it'll be really interesting. You know, in ten years to look back on these uh, medical school reflections and just be like, oh wow, I was really drunk on step one and not really sober Eugene and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know if, if the, the reflect, like I don't know if my recording style has changed very much, but I just have always kind of recorded stuff. Did you get that from anywhere? Mm, 
Um, or do you think you just kind of developed it out of necessity? I think I developed it out of necessity um, and as a coping mechanism for the stress that I was experiencing during, like, you know, the travels that I was talking about or boot camp and medical school as well. Um, just very elaborate coping mechanisms. Um, I never really journaled much when I was growing up through college. Um, and then there was a point when I was not journaling when I, like, post-college pre-medical school, but I was recording things in other ways. Like, uh, when I was coaching, I would record in, through a handwritten form, like, the workouts I would have them assign and, and just, like, little things just so that, like, now I can look back and be like, oh, wow, I did that. I made them do this and I made them do that. And um, it was just very interesting to see. So you are a student and a recorder and you are also a gamer. Yeah. Tell me about that. I um, I think I've always been a gamer, um, mostly because I was very much an indoor child growing up. I <laughs> he's just wobbling, he's <laughs> wobbling so hard. He's kind of mad at me. He's, he's a little mad at you, but he's tolerating it. I'm sorry. Go. So um, yeah, I was all, I was a very much an indoor child growing up. I played a lot of video games. Um, like Nintendo 64, it was my first the console that I could remember, and then uh, played a lot of uh, like first-person shooters, and did, joined a clan, and got really good at it, and then stopped abruptly. And um, you know, I I remember like I remember when my dog growing up got hit by a car while I was playing Enemy Territory, and I remember the map, and I remember like uh, just quitting everything because I was just like, holy, holy crap, this is a lot. Um, and so there's a lot, there's been a lot that has happened to me while gaming. I, I created a lot of good friendships, um, while gaming, having friends come over and we all play our little consoles. And so we're all kind of like reading our own books, but we're in the room together. Um, and also, uh, just playing land, land parties with people. I remember, uh, playing Age of Empires during lunch in high school, uh, with all the other indoor kids. <laughs> and it was just really fun. Um, and just talking smack. And in college, playing Super Smash Brothers with my college buddies and talking more smack. Um, and then playing StarCraft, uh, you know, when I was uh, an upperclassman in college because StarCraft II came out. Um, and loving all aspects of gaming just because it's such an interesting... It's, it's fun, it's recreational, but it's also a very interesting way to, map, to achieve... To, to pursue mastery. And... Um, I'm reminded of my sta of my status as a gamer because I recently started playing Go a lot and I'm playing with my dad and I'm playing with a bunch of strangers online and I'm playing it um, with some of my friends and it's just really fun to play this simple simple game with all these complexities and then it's also more recently I've you know I picked up the Nintendo Switch and I'm playing Legend of Zelda I haven't played the last couple of days just because of life um, like little assignments here and there. But it's also really lovely just to get back into playing video games because I find them very relaxing and it's just a very interesting way to pursue mastery is just like these are the rules of the game. Um, this is how this these are this is how you win or this is how you lose and um, it's I think a very interesting way to look at life is just as a game where you. Uh, you know, don't play the game if you're not if you're not having fun. Like if you're not having fun, then don't play the you know. Then it's then like and figure out ways to make it fun and 
Um, the game can be as big or as small as you want, and it can be as simple as kicking a ball um, between two poles and calling that soccer. Um, it can be, you know, there, there are just so many ways. I think being a gamer allows you to look at the world a little bit differently in terms of like, and you know, there, there, you know, the the binary thing of like you win or you lose is one thing, but also just being able to enjoy the game itself. And I, I thought about saying I'm a player, but that would have very different <laughs> conversations. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I just, I really have always, like, gaming has been in my blood, and it's part of, like, you know, my Korean identity is, like, we Koreans have played StarCraft and Go since the age of, you know, whenever Starcraft it started. StarCraft and Go. <laughs> yeah, StarCraft since, you know, the Middle Ages. <laughs> so... There's a, there's a lot in there. Um, I, I guess one of the things that I'll pull out is uh, you talked a little bit in the last interview about your Korean identity and what it meant to have immigrant parents. Um, has that changed at all, especially since becoming a father? I think my... my I don't think my... So, like, I... There are aspects of my Korean identity that are passed down to Junsu. I mean, it, even in his name and his last name. Um, having, I, I've, I feel like it's important for him to have an idea of his Korean identity. Um, just because the world will see it anyway, and if we can hide it for him, or he can, you know, wear it on his forehead, um, like I did. Um, and while I didn't have a Korean name, um, Eugene is odd enough that I was still made fun of for it, and I feel like I was made fun of for my name um, without having the full heritage of my name, um, being Eugene. And so I think that there's, my, my relationship to uh, my heritage has changed a little bit, but it's also more, I think it's more just understanding um, my, my, like, the history of my family and how um, my father's relationship with his father changed the way that I ha interacted with my father and how I don't want that to affect that how I don't want the relationship of my grandfather to my father to affect the way that I interact with my son um, and that I have the opportunity and the great challenge of being able to change that because my father was was severely neglected and abused by his father and that his seeking for uh, paternal affection has been something that has uh, been a scar on him and that that really affected my relationship with him because he had no good models for for good paternal or like loving paternal behavior um, and you know he was an immigrant and he worked really hard so that was really difficult for him and I do not fault him for failing me but I do acknowledge the fact that he failed um, and he was trying his best and that I'm going to fail Junsu in many ways. Um, I just, and I, there'll be many ways that I fail him that I don't even understand yet, um, and I can't predict. I just know that I don't want to fail him the same way that I was failed. Um, and maybe we'll just keep playing whack-a-mole for generations to come, and that sounds, I mean, that's sort of what we've just been doing for many generations. We'll never quite get there um, until maybe we fix the culture, but I think that there's... Um, my relationship to my parents have changed dramatically um, since having Junsu. Um, 
and I also think of it almost as like a game. Like there's just like, you know, that that that, that was the big reveal. You know, <laughs> like one, like the whole relationship of my dad to his to my grandfather. Like that was like the big twist, and now I get to uh, go into this next stage of the world where I have this kid, and now I have to figure out how to do that, and then. Um, then there'll be another co-player, like another, like a player four on the, on the squad, you know, it'll just really change things. And, um, like I won this game right now trying to get this baby to sleep. <laughs> like this is a little game and, and I won because he's asleep and he's kind of not really paying attention anymore and making fussy noises. It's, um, yeah. One of the other things that you, uh, brought up. I can't remember if we talked about in the um, first interview was being an indoor human during your childhood mm -hmm. and uh, how that's that's obviously shaped your identity as a gamer because that's what you spent a lot of your time doing indoors uh, but how that's shaped your your experience of the world and your um, desire for how you and your family and uh, whomever you interact with in the world, um, how has that shaped those kind of interactions and that, that kind of desire going forward? I think being able to call myself an indoor human is important because um, while I try to spend some, like, you know, uh, I try to get sun on my whole naked body and I try to uh, hunt and I try to move outside regularly and expose my soul to the cold, I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm still a mostly sedentary and mostly indoor person. Um, and if I acknowledge that, then I can find, then I can then try to optimize the ways in which I'm indoors. Like I try to get the sun while I'm still indoors. I try to get fresh air while I'm indoors. Um, try to m be very intentional about leaving the indoors to go outdoors. Um, because my dog walks me and I walk her. Um, and I think it's also important to, to recognize that you need to spend time outdoors. And um, while I don't necessarily want June to, to be as much of an indoor human as I was, um, I think it'll just be very important to recognize that he'll still be an indoor human. Um, and how do we make that a thing that he can look back on with a little bit of a smile um, versus um, being a little mad about it. Um, and I want him to have a relationship with the outdoors and, and with the wildlife around him um, because I know that that's something that over the last few years that I've uh, tapped into has been very important to me um, and has changed the way that I look at the world. So in terms of, uh, I guess, changing the way that you look at the world, when we talked in our last interview, um, we talked about how, and you've talked in, in many of your interviews about um, having, having been brought up um, with a mother who's a very, has a very strong faith and is uh, Catholic. Um, and then going through this um, very strong um, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Militantly atheist. <laughs> that is the phrase, militantly atheist, thank you, to use your words exactly. Um, how has that changed and has it, has it changed at all? Yeah, um, I have 
uh, a much broader perspective, I think, on what does religion and spirituality do for a human. Because um, humans do a lot for religion and spirituality, but like, what do we actually get from it? Um, and I think that there's a lot of really good communal uh, uh, glue from religion and spirituality. And I don't know exactly that I would follow in my mother's footsteps of be going into the Catholic faith, um, but I do think that it's important to f go into some sort of faith um, or like some formalized larger group just, just to have that glue of like a community. Because um, like I said, like a, the culture at large has failed us, but um, one of the ways in which we kind of stick together through, you know, the gossip and the BS is uh, through faith, at least in like the good communities. Um, so I think that there's a lot of value to be had. It's just finding the right one. And, and I think that a lot of, like I, I struggle to, to think of an example of what a faith that, you know, that I've really, really, I'm like, oh, I don't, nah, there's, there's, this is just wrong. Uh, I think that there are just shades and, and different lenses on the same sort of experience. Um, and while others might, may disagree with that assessment, I think that it's, um, I've, I've attended enough varying religious um, services to see, like, it's all kind of the same thing. It's, you know, the language changes and the way that they stand up and sit down changes and the way that they uh, pray and um, the names that they use change, but it's all pretty much the same thing. And so I think tapping into that is important, um, both for myself and for uh, Junsu and future children, because I think that, um, yeah, something that I said before is that you can, a child can run away from the village, um, that's fine, because they may find their way back. Um, but if they never have a village to start with, then they're just wandering uh, aimlessly. And, um, you know, if the children leave the village and go to a different village, then they have something to compare and contrast to. Um, whereas if they are in the wilderness and then they find that village, then they may not have the perspective of being able to um, accurately kind of be like, hey, this is, you know, I think it's weird that we're all drinking this Kool-Aid. Um, you know, <laughs> it's just, there's all this kind of stuff going on. Um, they're like, why are we all having sex with the leader? Like, it's all, like, there's, I think that there's, it's important to be able to be, like, <laughs> well, like, having, having something to run away from is important. And, you know, maybe he'll run away from a lot of the things that I help, that I induct him into in the world, but I think that's fine. Um, because I don't really want him to be the person that I'm making him into. Um, but I think having these experiences is important such that they help inform who he is in the future. So you are a student, a recorder, and a gamer. Is there anything else that you are? Mm, nothing that my brain, you know, with two months of non-continuous <laughs> sleep. You know, like, we haven't slept for eight hours in, like, two and a half months, like, at this point, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's fine. I think that's good. I think the audience should know that we have all these little breaks. Yeah. So 
we're just back from our first break after the first question. Started nursing a very ravenous baby. And Honey is still napping. That's okay. Thank you, Honey. And you are working out some knots from bouncing the baby. So the next prompt is, before I die, I want. And how do you complete that prompt? Uh, last time around, I had a very, like, intellectual answer, or, like, a very fancy answer. And I think I would like to... Well, I had a fancy answer, like, I want to see love outweigh fear, and then the second one was, I want to be a grandfather. And I still want to be a grandfather, um, but I think I'll tone it down. I would like to see all of my children reach sexual maturity. I think if I can die and they've all kind of finished puberty, I'll be pretty okay. I think I'm ideally longer, you know? <laughs> but I think that's like the, the bare bones of like, yeah, it'd be nice, I would really like to see that. Just because I know how terrifying and unusual the experience of puberty is and so I would like to be able to be present for that experience for all of my children um, just to be able to be like hey this is how you shave because my dad didn't teach me how to shave I had to figure that out on my own because um, he, he was very present but very he was physically present but emotionally absent and so I want to be emotionally present and physically present for the develop the final kind of like biological development of my children, um, and then beyond that, it would be nice. But I think that's the last like stage where I'm like I should really be here. That's a very different answer <laughs> than before. Uh, I think I think mostly in that there is this almost finite sense of time that that implies mm -hmm. um, whereas love outweighing fear is definitely much more of a as you said already intellectual possibility but certainly not one to necessarily expect within one's lifetime so what what brought about this change because that's a pretty that's, I'm, I'm not going to say a 180 change but a 180 change I think um, the developments in the greater world over the past um, two years since the past interview, um, there's a lot, a lot of crazy shit has happened. And I think that pinning, pinning something that I want on something that is so out of my control is very difficult. Um, so I think just making the scope very small and making the bar very low um, in terms of just reaching sexual maturity, <laughs> I think that's uh, that makes it much easier to be able to like, okay, this is that's you know if I can do that, that's fine. Because um, if I try to make it too big, then it'd be cool, but I don't know if there's a way to really measure that and to be satisfied with it. And that reminds me kind of of our experience with early parenthood and having goals for each day, and then realizing very quickly that if we set one to two goals in our new ritual is setting three goals a day for ourselves and those being actually measurable attainable goals 
has, I think, really bolstered our, our sense of accomplishment. Even if those goals are something as small as, I'm going to give honey a bath. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that that's a really, really wonderful kind of um, shift in, in perspective. And, and um, I, I think you started to answer this uh, in terms of, you know, it being one of the last, I guess, um, one of the last kind of great periods of development that a human can undergo, but why sexual maturity? Why is that, or why, why was that the point where you decided not, not, not necessarily them starting a family or, or them graduating college, and, and I know that those are very kind of quintessential things for people to want to see or have have their children achieve, but why sexual maturity? Um, because that's because starting a family, being a grandparent, that's a very much outside of my decision making. Um, like I have a friend whose mother is old; like she she was like forty something when she had him, and she really wants grandchildren. But it's also very unfair of her to want grandchildren because she started her family too late, you know, to really reasonably be able to see her son reach sexual maturity. Uh, develop into a person who can have a family, have a family, and then show that baby to the, who will, a mom who will be like 85, probably, by the time. You know, it's just not fair um, to really kind of pin that on him. So, I think, uh, and who knows if my kids want kids, you know? Um, maybe they don't. Maybe they'll just, uh, maybe they'll get vasectomies very early on and just ride that out. Um, who knows? So, I think being able to just say, you will, these kids will probably go through puberty, and, uh, after that, then it's all kind of up to them. Like, if they get orphaned after puberty, it's not, that's not the worst time to get orphaned. It's not a great time, um, but I think that that's way better than before puberty. Because then there's a lot of, like, weird attachment things, and, you know, you can still be a very well-developed human with those attachment things, but it's just, you know, that's the baggage that you have for your life, you know? Um, is there anything other than seeing your children reach sexual maturity that you want before you die? Mm. I would like to feel like, I would like to feel that I have done enough weird shit with my MD that it was worth it. <laughs> like I, um, I get, we were listening to the comedian last night that was talking about how Filipino moms Im imprint this idea of becoming a nurse in their Filipino children and I think in the grand, in like the macro sense, like I might have gone into medical school, you know, partially to appease my parents because I was doing such wackadoodle shit um, before medical school. <laughs> and uh, I think it's given them a great sense of peace to know that I ha will have these letters. But I also know that the reason why I, Eugene, entered medical school was in order to do 
to enter the field of psychiatry and do different things with uh, psychiatric, um, like state licensure, than other people would have. And so if I, I feel like if I do a very standard practice, I will have failed myself in terms of what, why I went through this whole process. And I want to do some really out there stuff with my MD in terms of psychedelics, in terms of the way I practice, and in terms of the relationships that I have with my patients and my fellow um, providers, um, that if I don't do anything weird with it, then I will feel like it was a waste. Um, just because somebody else could have been, you know, doing the inpatient consult liaison world for their whole career. When, if I do that, then I'll feel like someone else could have done that very easily, much the same way, and I'll have been disappointed in myself by not furthering the field of psychiatry by doing wackadoodle shit. You started to touch on this, but what is some of the wackadoodle shit that you envision? I want to... Um, I want to have a transformational practice where patients actually... Uh, they go to the practice because they want to change and then they, they stay with the practice because they actually have changed. And I don't think that the, I don't, I think that the, the patients that do experience traumatic growth and change in the field, like under the care of the field of psychiatry are the outliers. And the ones that kind of stay the same or slowly decline are, is really much, is sort of the power that psychiatry has right now. And I don't know if psychedelics or, you know, a more holistic approach to mental health would really save everybody, but I know that it can say that it could turn more lives around than not, and I want to see what happens, and um, I think having a different style of practice, um, like, in, like having different types of providers with me, like in addition to therapists, having uh, massage therapists, having yoga instructors, uh, PTs that are really... Uh, more uh, functional movement minded um, just to help really change like you know we touched on this earlier like the the way that a human moves their body is the is the most fundamental unit of sovereignty and I think that helping people not just in terms of getting new medications and those switched around but I think just in just on changing the way that they see themselves in the world on a very granular basic level like the way that they move in their home when no one's watching is really important and I can't I, I have trouble seeing the way that normal psych, like the general field of psychiatry does that now um, can do that now and I I also struggle to see how I can make that happen with the future practice but I want that's the direction I want to go that sounds like a big change and it's not something, like, it's going to, like, will I use insurance? Will I go out of insurance? Will I only be able to treat really well-off, um, like, high tax bracket individuals and leave all the poor people to, uh, you know, booze and smoke themselves to death? Like, I'm trying to, like, I want to figure out a way to do, to not, to, to also have... You know, and it's also something like, I don't know how this would work with like HIPAA or whatever, but also having uh, patients from varying backgrounds interact with each other in the practice so that it's not just very much like you go to the practice just to see the physician or the, the, the advanced provider, but also to, to meet up with the other patients and have those relationships 
Um, because I think that that's really important, just to be, meet people that are also experiencing change so that they help you stay on the path of change. Um, yeah. And then, as you were saying that, I started thinking about your original answer of psychiatry being the redheaded stepchild of, of medicine and uh, this prevailing stigmatization of mental health disorders as compared to physical health disorders and it's snowing outside, sorry. Oh, hey. Unexpected. Very unexpected. Anyway, sorry. Uh, really, I'm coming back. Um, so this, this stigmatization and one of the things that I was thinking of is how successful um, visits can be in terms of uh, kind of the traditional health disorders like diabetes or um, COPD. And it, it's interesting to think of that turned around and applied to mental health disorders. I mean, and you think of there are such things as group therapy sessions, and there are things like AA, or the group model is really important. Um, but in doing that in your more holistic kind of approach in order to, to maintain change seems like intuitively something that would really help maintain change. Mm -hmm. Like the, uh, the current underground model of psychedelic therapy is one that is a group situation. You know, you get a bunch of people, they pay the person who, uh, like the, the, the shaman, the, the person administer, the facilitator, whatever, that you pay them, and there's a group setting, and the, the people talk before, after, and during, um, and that creates a lot of connections. Um, I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, what plus minus psychedelics is, is just like being getting people together who are kind of in the same boat and kind of going through the same thing is really important. And um, within mental health, it's very much like from, from both the development of a mental illness to the treatment of a mental illness, uh, there's very much like an isolation, like you're, all, you're alone in your box. You might see people in the waiting room, but you don't really talk with them because you're all super anxious. <laughs> you know, it's like very, it's not a great, uh, yeah. And it, it, to me, thinking back to your last answer as well, it's another instance of society failing us. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of mental health um, disorders are a symptom of a society that, that is failing. And addition, kind of this perpetuate, they are perpetuated because society is failing. And this kind of pervasive um, isolation that, that we all, all live under. So it... Sounds like really you are envisioning just greater connectedness and and an ability to foster that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it'll be like just creating a little cultural node that can grow and accumulate more people uh, as like an antidote to the wider sicker culture. Um, because like you said, it's just uh, I think that a lot of mental health disorders, especially generalized anxiety and major depressive disorder, are symptoms of a wider cultural illness, not necessarily an individual illness. Like, it is the culture that is sick, and as a result, the humans are the ones that are killing themselves. Um, not that the humans are poorly constructed, um, and they are the ones at fault. Nice. Nice yeah. Um, Great poops. <laughs> he agrees. <laughs> so, other than seeing your children reach sexual children, child, maybe children will include animals in there. Why not? Or non-human animals? Sure. I mean, unless we get you know cut their bits off, then it's a great question. Will do they ever reach sexual maturity? Do they? 
But, uh, so other than seeing your children reach sexual maturity and using your MD to do lackadoodle shit, <laughs> is there anything else you want before you die? I would like some, I would like a period of like a year with you and going back to a couple again. That'd be nice. That'd be pretty cool. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're saddled with him for the next 18 years, you know? <laughs> That's, and plus... Longer. Yeah, longer, <laughs> you know, whatever. But it, it would just be nice to be a couple again. Um, and I say that only two months into parenthood, <laughs> realizing that's very silly shit to say. Um, but I also, it would just be really nice, you know, just to be a couple again. And, uh, and maybe we take sabbaticals from parenthood in the middle of parenthood where we kind of like uh, ship all the kids off to boarding school. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I rolled my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Just something, just so that it would be nice to be able to not worry so much about other things for a little while. Or just at least attenuate that worrying. That'd be nice. Interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to see before you die? I don't think so. Are you giving me the verbal double thumbs? You're the one interviewing. I am interviewing. Yeah, so you're the you I'm give the, me the verbal double. I, I misunderstood that whole <laughs> that whole order of things. Then. Um, no, I guess I'll, I'll dig a little bit deeper into the into the coupleness. Um, okay. Why is that so important to you? So if we're saddled with him for the next, let's say, twenty years, right? In twenty years. We will have been a couple for one third of our life, and we will have been no, we will we will have been parents for one third of our life. When you know when I hit uh, 50, 20 years in, you know, and I'm thirty now or like twenty nine now, well, I'll be a I'll have been a parent for like two fifths of my entire life, and I will have been a couple with you for five uh, percent. You know, but but we'll have been you know a partnership for like you know twenty five percent of our life. <laughs> but it would just be nice to go back to that little like to to bring that sl that small sliver and make it a little bit bigger. Just because uh, you know, like you said with your stuff, it's he's sort of like the focus now, and uh, you'll be sad to leave him when you go on vacation. Not necessarily sad to leave me. You know, it's just like one of those. Uh, or maybe you are sad to leave me, but you'll always mention me second. It's just one of those things, you know? That's a really interesting perspective. I think, do you think that that's a difference in kind of what you were alluding to before in like a student of parenthood and the, um, the more of a supportive partner as opposed to the like mother role, the, the birthing or the, the primary caregiver? Or where do you think that that comes from? 
I think it's, I mean, part of it is just that, like, I don't, I mean, at least at this stage, I don't really consider father as, like, a major identifier for me. Like, I don't really, like, I know it's something that I do a lot right now, but it's also not, like, the, the driving thing at this point. And I don't know, I don't know if it will become something that I'm really, really strongly identifying with, and I don't... But I'm also not ruling it out. I also know that it's a very different relationship that I have to it than you do. Where, where it's like a very... Uh, like it's a very deep thing. And for me it's like a... If I don't see him, I'm kind of mad at him for being so noisy and annoying and loud sometimes. But when I see him and I see his smiley face or he's chubby and you know angry... I'm like, oh, he's really cute. I can forgive him for all of those sins. <laughs> but, but like, if I don't see him, I'm like, oh, he's a whole thing, and he's really saddling us down. And it's not like I'm mad at him, but it's just like, it's hard. Like, the idea of him in my head is not uh, glowing yet. You know, like I like him. I like looking at him. I like playing with him. But it's he's. I'm not like a. So, so I guess what I'm saying is, like, when I go to that idea of wanting to be a couple again, it's, like, I see, I spent three years as a couple, and I spent two months as a dad, you know? And so it's just, it'll be nice to go back to that, just because it was a little familiar, and it was a little bit easier, there were less things to worry about, less diapers to change. Yeah. balls in your court. <laughs> balls in my court. There's not a lot I can say, I think. Um, makes sense. I think I'll give you the verbal double thumbs up since I'm beating our saddlebag. Alright. How do you finish the prompt when I die, if I want? I want to be enjoying it. I want to have fun dying. Um, or at least be able to, like, in a, in a, in a sense, like, in, like, a part of me is enjoying it. Maybe it's painful, but at least, like, part of me is like, uh, oh, yeah, this would be kind of nice, like, on the other side. Um, I don't know what it'll look like or be like on the other side, but at least, like, I'm going. Um, like, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, like, we're, we're just talking about near-death experiences and um, how, like, there's a lot of really interesting literature about it and just the idea of, like, you know, somebody, there's somebody there to grab you, you know, like, somebody's there. And uh, it'll just be really interesting to see, like, who's that person for me and um, what does that feel like and just knowing that, like, oh, yeah, I'm done. Like, it's, uh, like... You know, Eugene, your neck has hurt for like the last 30 years, and it's, you know, your neck doesn't need to hurt anymore. And, um, you know, you don't need to do some of the silly shit that you need to do in order to pay rent. It's just, you get to be done with all that stuff. Or maybe you don't, maybe you have to go right back, <laughs> you know? And, um, but it'd just be nice to be able to be like, ah, okay, this is over. Mm -hmm. And that, that answer isn't very different 
extremely different than your first answer because the thing that I think of for the first interview that we did was uh, kind of the ecstatic revelry that you wanted around death. Mm -hmm. Do you envision, I guess, is your answer now more of a personal thing than a broader kind of group thing? Or is it, um, do you still envision this, this joy extending to the people who you love around you? Or how do you, how do you see this? I'm not really sure. I, um, since the previous interview, I've had my first experiences with death. And, um, one of them was with an injured bird that I, uh, that I, that I ended their, its life, um, because it was going to die anyway. And I was like, I'm not going to let this just, I'm not just going to wander by. And the other one was a, was a, a feline friend, uh, Frank, who, um, was very ill and was, you know, on his way out, and um, participating in that, in the actual death of something, was very, uh, it really changed the way, like, I, it's, you know, in retrospect, I just have trouble seeing how, um, you know, for me, myself, it was just such a somber experience, and I just, it, I have trouble imagining how to make that a joyous one for others. Um, maybe for Frank and for the, for the dove, it was very, they were very joyous experiences, um, but for, for me, it was just like very difficult. And, you know, part of me wishes that, um, that you or Junsu or somebody close to me can end my life, um, so that I don't need to just like peter out like a, like an old person's fart, um, that I can just kind of die. And some might bristle at that idea of calling it murder, but I also think it's just, um, it's really nice just to not have to, you know, really squeeze the last bit of juice out of it. Oh, honey, don't do that. Honey, stop it. Good girl. Good girl. Yeah, she was rubbing her vulva all over that carpet. And, um, yeah, I just, I think it would take a lot to get a group of people to really be joyous about it. Um, I just struggle, just because I don't think that it's in our culture. I don't think that that's something that you can teach somebody it's something that you'd have to grow up with and I just think that would take maybe for Junsu's generation that might happen but for ours it's just not a reality but for me I can be happy as I'll get out rather than dying you know <laughs> as long as maybe I can make that choice um, but I know that for you it'll be really hard if, if I'm dying while you're still around I know that'll be really hard for you and it'll be hard for you to get a smile on your face as it's happening um, and probably for June um Maybe our cat, if we get a cat, would be very happy about it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just um, just realizing what you can really reasonably ask of other people um, who have experiences that aren't what you want them to be. And that... I feel like in a lot of your answers there's been a certain degree of shift from um, idealistic and uh, and kind of uh, uh, intellectual response to a more realistic mm -hmm. response um, and do you feel that your your um, expectations of death have shifted as well with your experiences or do you feel like perhaps it's just 
that you are um, putting less on the experiences of others I, I, or less of your expectations on others? Mm. Yeah, I think there's a tempering of it. I think um, uh, less making it about the other person. They're just going to, they're going to grieve no matter what around in the way that they're going to grieve. And, um, you know, like, I remember that there's this joke that I heard recently about, like, uh, somebody taking the death of Michael Jackson as as if they knew Michael Jackson on a personal level since Billie Jean came out and then they just came out with like a rhinestone like rest in peace Michael Jackson later that day and I was like did you make that you couldn't have ordered it it was just like, you think people are gonna do weird shit in response to people dying um, and there's very little that the dying can actually do to temper that except for you know maybe not uh, you know, maybe say some nice things and maybe it'll ease it a little bit, but it's really, it's really hard to change the course of it um, because that, that's the course of their own life. Um, but for me, I think... I think seeing... Uh, rotating for a month with the hospice and palliative care team in the hospital was really good for me uh, just to understand, like, what does it look like when somebody dies in the hospital and, like when you have to have the conversations with the family and, uh, you know, how does, um, a, like, a wife of 40 years come to terms with uh, removing care from a husband who is not going to make a meaningful recovery that would he, that he would be satisfied with? Um, that was really tough. It was really sad, you know, just her crying and asking who's going who's gonna to pick uh, my dandelions for me, you know? It was just like, oh, shit, that's really sad. And I remember the name of her husband. I don't remember her name. Um, it's just like, uh, it's, it changes things. And also the participating in um, harvesting meat and food from the landscape, um, uh, allowing three roadkill deer and one poached deer to uh, feed us and our family. Um, that's been really important to me, to really participate in death and the cycle of life. Um, it's really important to me to know, like, like since I've started to do this, to really understand where does the food that I eat come from, and um, you know, a lot of carrots I eat come from like Mexico, but I'd like to know where the meat that at least where it comes from because that's such, uh, you know, it's a, it's such a living, breathing life, and it's it can suffer, and um, plants are pretty chill uh, in a way, um, but animals they can be very sad and. Um, get like understanding how quickly I can turn a dead carcass into food um, has also changed the way that I look at death and not that I think anyone would turn me into food after I die but I think it's it's just a very interesting idea just to look at like how quickly can something that you know like if you look at a roadkill deer and it rots on the side of the road how much bad feelings does that give to people when they see like oh that's gross on the side of the road versus if I like as soon as it dies uh, I find it I take it home and I turn it into food and for the next few weeks it's uh, delicious nutritious uh, grass-fed you know organic as all the labels that you can describe to it um, for the rest of you know it, it, it's just such an interesting way to convert something that can be sad and gross um, into something really beautiful um, I think just having that like direct exposure and talking to um, families that are going through the grieving process just really changed it for me. It's just like, oh, it's, you know, you might 
understand that your mom is going to a really lovely place and she's spiritually powerful and that she's with her with with God and that you're you know in theory happy about it but it still doesn't change the fact that your mom just died and that you can be very sad about that and you're allowed to be and there's you know not really any sort of intellectualizing that I can do to change that grief um, just uh, just give you time and a lot of space and uh, a couple of my friends their dad they, they've recently joined the dead dad club and just understanding that I can't do shit for them I can you know maybe facilitate like um, depth of conversation um, so that if, you know if there's something that needs to get out they can get out but at the same time it's like if your dad died two months ago there's you're gonna be really sad about it there's not like there's it's really hard to get to a place of like ecstatic joy during or afterwards until that wound is healed and there's you know that dad space hole in your heart is replaced by other things and I guess the question in my mind is can it be replaced in your, your the experiences that you've seen or, or mm -hmm. um it seems like eventually it does or at least you it gets less sore and you know, if it's, if you're thinking about like a dad spaced hole in your heart, you know the edges get rounded out, and you know some sand blows through it, fills off the bottom. You know, it's a kind of like the edges sh sh uh, shave away so that it's less sharp, but it's still a hole. I mean, it might get replaced by other things, but um, it's never going to fit exactly. So, when you die, you want to experience joy um, and I think we kind of dived into a little bit of why that is and what that looks like for you at very least um, is there anything else you want when you die to have expressed love recently to many people um, so that I can be like, oh, you know, as I'm dying, I'm like, okay, cool, I've said, like, some goodbyes. I might have not have said goodbyes. I might have just expressed love, so that's pretty cool so that I don't have, you know, that. I, I, I Then I would, like, kind of clean up some of the laundry behind me, at least, so, you know, like, having those nice conversations so that it's a little bit easier on people as they, as they grieve. Um... Really, I just want to, I think it'd just be really cool, really cool to die. It's just such a different experience. That, you know, like the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life are going to be like shades of this experience, you know? But dying is going to be some really crazy shit, and it's going to be very different. And um, I'd ideally like to die out alone in the woods, but I'd also know that that'd be really weird for a lot of people. Um, so... There's a lot of, like, what I want versus, like, what will actually happen versus what, like, um, what would be ideal. So it's just, um, I'm pretty cool with it. I just know that it's going to be a really, a really wild ride to die. Is there anything else you want when you die? No, I don't think so. How do you finish the prompt? 
How do you finish the prompt? After I die, I want After I die, I want to move through the temporal dimension freely. And like, what I mean by that is it just, it would be cool, you know, if I can just wish for whatever I want, it'd be cool just to be able to kind of go through time and sort of see like, oh, that's who killed Kennedy. Like that's, uh, that was the first person to come up with a wheel. Like it would just be really cool to look back and kind of get some of the mysteries lifted and sort of see uh, where did humans originate from? Like all of those sorts of questions. And to also look deep into the future and see like, oh, this is where we're going. I did not see that coming. Like I, I didn't think we'd come up with like uh, water-based solar panels, you know, just like wacky, uh, wacky stuff. Um, and that's just selfish. I would like just to know things. It'd be cool to know stuff that I can't know now. Um, yeah, I just, I'm curious and I want to know some stuff. Do you envision it as a literal like time traveler, like Doctor Who kind <laughs> of moving through time, or do you envision it as once you die, your subconscious just instantly knows all of these things? Oh goodness! If my subconscious instantly knew all of history, it past and future, that'd be pretty. That'd be a lot for my subconscious. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm asking, uh, I, and this is just in a selfish envisionment of what happens when you die. But in joining kind of the collective conscious, conscience, would you? I, then wouldn't you be? privy to all of the knowledge that it has and how could this be overwhelming if you're a part of the whole conscience mm -hmm. like I guess I guess I'm just wondering how you envision it um the way I envision it now is sort of like uh going to a very big library with micro slides with my microfiche and <laughs> <laughs> just kind of putting it in and then looking and being like oh huh alright and then putting it back <laughs> and um yeah, and just because, you know, I wouldn't be able to affect it, and it wouldn't really change anything, but it would just be like, oh, okay, cool, it's cool to know. And so, in that sort of, same sort of, like, browsing the internet, and just getting lost in Wikipedia on Armenian uh, fashion in the 1900s, it would just be really cool to know some stuff. And, um, maybe my subconscious would just know all of it. And that would be less fun than kind of discovering things, but maybe discovering things is just much more of a individual animal with an ego sort of idea than it is the uh, eventual whatever happens to us when we die. Um, but I think it'd be fun. That's, at least that's like my fun, like, hey, that'd be cool. And that's interesting because from what I remember of your answer in our first interview is you wanted more of that collective conscience, consciousness. You wanted more uh, to kind of move past the individual ego and to join that collective. Yeah, I think that's just more of a, like a larger frustration that I've experienced trying to find a greater collective, greater collectives in general and just failing. You know, like I just don't, I have to make it, and I have to make it very slowly, and it's, you know, probably not going to be what I end up, what I had envisioned originally, but at least uh, I'm starting to develop, you know, like, I, I'm doing certain things, like, uh, uh, arranging monthly 
group calls leading up to a bachelor party so that we can all connect and know each other, which is, you know, a little bit different than most people's bachelor parties, whereas they just go get drunk and do some really silly, regrettable things. Um, and for this, I want to do something a little bit differently, and, and my group of friends, they're entirely willing to go on this adventure with me. Um, but that's, like, the best example that I have of a collective that I'm participating in, and I don't find it anywhere else in my life. Um, so I just... I, I, um, like, as this Eugene, I'm just a little bit like, uh, I don't even remember what I wanted when it was a, when I wanted a collective. Like, it was just, it's just, I have so few experiences of it because medicine itself is very selfish and, and individual driven that it's hard to remember the Eugene that wants to be, that, that, that wanted the collective because I, I at this point now uh, at the end of med medical school I kind of forget what it's like to be a part of a collective. That's a really interesting kind of commentary that's run throughout our conversation of the isolationism of our of our society both on macro and micro kind of kind of scales. Mm -hmm. um, other than though uh, wanting that little little time travel instant knowledge library what else would you like after you die i would like humans to no longer be the dominant uh life form on this planet i think it'd be cool just to like you know well if you look at the way uh bacteria take over or a mold takes over a uh, an agar plate and just eats up all the resources and then everything dies off that's kind of i feel like that's what we're kind of going through right now we're going through the boom and there's soon going to be a bust um and as a result other life forms will take over like there there are a lot of tr like it'd just be nice to have the trees come back and uh the bison come back and um deer to be able to roam without having to worry about getting hit by cars all the time um, and have the birds come back, monarch butterflies do their thing again, I know the, their population is dropping, it's just, it's, there's like a lot, with this huge boom of humans and our influence and our terraforming of the earth, there's a lot of other life that is dying as a result, and, um, as of yet, I don't, you know, there's some cool stuff we have, like, uh, music, and, um, you know, medicine and, like, some TV shows. There's very little that I think is, like, really we can point to it and be like, this is why we're killing the orangutans. Like, this this cool thing, you know? And the, there are very few examples of that. Um, and I don't see any really coming up soon. Um, and that might just be, a, like, because I feel like there's we're in a very weird time of uh, a fear ruling. Um... But I just would like to see other life forms come back in the future. I don't know how long it would take, um, but it would just be nice to know that, you know, we humans, we were given a shot and we, you know, played with it and it's over and now it's time for the uh, cats to rule the world. <laughs> what a terrible world. <laughs> I guess that's my personal bias. So, 
I guess what is there any <laughs> any particular species that you have a proclivity to say or any kind of inkling that they might be on top after after humans go up? Not really, because we're wiping out a lot of the smart ones, like dolphins and whales and other higher apes, and uh, it depends on how they're, you know, what the state we leave them in and how quickly they can bounce back and do stuff, but uh, it'd be really cool to see what, you know, dolphins could do, because uh, they are really smart, they have high levels of social interaction, and uh, they don't need to use hands. Because they have no need of hands <laughs> or making things. There's like life is great in the ocean until their entire ocean is stripped away and uh, filled with stuff like plastic. It's uh, really it'd be really cool. Oh, honey, <laughs> that's not the place to do that. Oh, girl. Uh, <laughs> it'd just be really cool to see um, other, you know, maybe like a hive intelligence. Oh my goodness. Or maybe it would be like yeah, really cool to see like a hive intelligence, like an insect based. <laughs> Over there, over there. We're gonna eat it over there. It'd be really cool to see like an insect, like uh, hive intelligence, and see how that thing does stuff uh, that doesn't value at all individual life, but uh, you know, collective um, well-being. It'd be neat. Very interesting, Dave. <laughs> Other than those two things, is there anything you'd like after you die? I think uh, it would be cool to see humans get off the ground, you know, just to like, I always imagine, like, uh, the way we humans right now build our buildings and, you know, the way that we terraform the earth by, like, flattening it out, making it perfectly level, and then pouring concrete so it's very flat. It'd just be cool to see humans get off of the ground and to, as a whole species, just be more agile. Um, sort of like a bunch of monkeys or orangutans or bonobos, just being able to like, oh, I can get from the ground to 20 feet up in this tree in like 10 seconds, you know? And it would just be cool if we were all, as a species, more physically fit so that we don't need the flat earth the, the flat, like, ground, we can just, like, have little perches, and uh, the way, like, we have uh, the same, we have buildings that are on the outside enclosed, but the floors are few and far between, and there's just these big open spaces with lines and hammocks and um, very, like, uh, home tree from Avatar kind of thing going on that requires more mobility, and I understand that this is a very ableist idea, but it's, uh, it'd just be cool if we were, you know, more in line with our anatomy than we are with our construction patterns. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that you like to ask in your interviews and that, that you answered previously, um, do you see the world moving in a more positive direction or a more negative direction after you die? 
I think it's very ambiguous. I think there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening, and I think there's a lot of sad stuff that's happening. And I don't know if they, you know, you can really kind of trade horses to say. And um, I think on, on, the, on the level that I see on a day-to-day -day basis, things are good. Um, I think on the wider scale, when I sort, sort of, you know, incorporate all of the weird news and stories about the environment as a whole, as a whole think it very sad. Um, so, I'll, you know, and sort of in keeping with the whole conversation we've had so far, is like, I'll just keep it on the smaller spectrum and just say things are pretty good. Like, uh, you know, the people that I love are doing cool stuff and um, they're going through some hard stuff, but they're growing as a result of it. So I think uh, um, things as a whole are going in a good direction. Is there anything else you'd like after you die? If I die before you do, I would like you to have a lot of fun. I don't know what that exactly would look like. You know, if you want to, you know, have a sexual revolution in your 60s. Or if you just want to, uh, you know, do really fun stuff like get into knitting. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. But I just want, uh, you know, you grieve as long as you need to grieve, uh, but have a lot of fun afterwards. You know, the death of Eugene is not the death of fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a fun, like, epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you'd like? No. Then... You've answered the four prompts at this moment in time, having gone through the trials and tribulations of the past three or so years. What advice do you have for the listener this last last few minutes? What, what do you have to say to the audience at large, too? an older Eugene, a younger Eugene, to Junsu, to me, to the world at large. I think I would, I would still say what I said last time, which is um, just a little bit of practical advice to uh, practice something, to practice all the time. Um, and you don't need to practice the same thing all the time, but just keep practicing and pursuing mastery and getting better as, as like a gamer would be getting better at trying to speed run through a level of a difficult video game. Just, just and have, have fun practicing and uh, don't allow yourself to be lulled into a sense of complacency by a plateau. Um, understand that a plateau is just your lack of perspective. Um, and so just keep practicing and uh, keep trying to get better at stuff because once you stop trying to get better at stuff you, you things are you're, it's over you're dead so just keep trying to get better it's cool <laughs> thank you thank you
not Mackenzie. I'm Mackenzie Frost. But I would like to welcome you to On Death, the podcast where death is discussed through the four prompts. I am, before I die I want, when I die I want, and after I die I want. So this week, um, we kind of have a little bit of a different format. And tables were turned on um, Eugene, who is the usual host of this podcast, and Eminem Wad, kind of the overbranching um, website that Eugene maintains. Um, and I'm sure that he'll uh, kind of hopefully discuss that a little bit with you this week. Um, but if you've been following his long form Sundays, he and I have been traveling cross-country um, from Tampa, where we go to school, uh, medical school, to California uh, to attend a music festival and to kind of travel throughout the state. It's my home state, and um, I really wanted him to be able to see a lot of the beautiful, wonderful parts of this state. So the the intricacies and details, I'll, I'll leave that to him to discuss and for you to pursue in his long form. But suffice it to say that somewhere in southwest uh, Colorado, I got a little squirrely and I asked Eugene if he would answer the four prompts with me. I really didn't expect a yes or to have it recorded, but I got both. And it was a lot like just wanting a little taste of something and getting the whole tamale. And we're definitely blessed to have the whole tamale. I'm very excited. So without much further ado, it, it, it was exciting and it was also um, daunting because e Eugene's answers, as you can guess, are very profound and, and very important. And I think that our conversation really captured a lot of that. And so that is that is the excitement um, that I'm excited to be able to share part of that and to have shared that experience with him and with you. So Eugene is a student. He's a coach and he's a writer. Uh, and he has already affected many, many others through those various capacities and when he wears those different hats. Um, he is passionate about inspiring change in others through his coaching and through his vision of uh, meta-coaching that he'll discuss in the interview in medicine and how it is practiced and how he wants to practice. And beyond, uh, he is the son of Korean immigrants, and we talk a bit about how that upbringing has affected him and uh, his perception of spirituality and and, and life. Um, and he is very visionary, and the scope of his vision really encapsulates everything uh, from his family today and the, his family of tomorrow to his fellow 
humankind, uh, to the world at large, and to great mysteries beyond that. I really think that you will enjoy this podcast. So as Eugene would say, grab some tea. It is a little lengthy, um, but necessarily so. It's very good. I think that you'll really enjoy it, um, and you'll get a lot of insight into Eugene. So without further ado, buckle up, enjoy your tea, enjoy this podcast, and thank you. It is the 3rd of June, and I am not the regular host of The Four Prompts. Um, I'm Mackenzie Frost, and it is a beautiful day, and I am going to be interviewing Eugene Kim on The Four Prompts. So Eugene, to the very best of your knowledge, (laughs) (laughs) can you please... Uh, describe the four prompts to the audience. I am before I die, I want when I die, I want after I die, I want. Beautiful. It's almost like you've done it. <laughs> I've you know? a couple times. <laughs> once, once or twice? Once or twice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, you understand the four prompts. Mm-hmm. I'd love to to tuck in with you and just kind of tease these out a little bit. Sounds good. Sounds good? Sounds great. Okay. So let's get started mm-hmm. with I am. Um, I can give you a bunch of answers at once and then open them up individually, or we can just go one by one. Let's do you. Let's do you, boo. Um... I like to, I like to do multiple, uh, just so that people under like so that they know how long I'll be talking rambling for. You know, <laughs> it's like gives them like a sense. Like it's like okay, we're only on one out of five. Like oh god, <laughs> we're buckle up, get the tea ready. <laughs> you know, um, but if you're kind of going in blind, you're like I don't know how far we've gone. I don't know how far we're going. I just, just, we're lost in the ocean. So um, I would like to do the a couple like listing them out. So I am a student coach and writer you are a student coach and writer so then let's uh, break it down i am a student you're a student Mm -hmm. of what um first i like to think of myself as a student of movement of human movement or just any like animal act like any any mammal bird like any sort of thing that moves just the way that in the manner in which it moves is a, I'm like I've, I think primarily I'm a student of that because it is such an interesting window into the way that like for humans it's a very interesting window into the way that they carry themselves the way like also like when you consider movement in terms of like body language and vocal tonality it's like a very because like you know vocal tonality comes from your vocal cords which is a type of movement you know it's like a very like in a very abstract sense but it's like the way that's and if you watch something in the way that it moves it's a very interesting window into the way it interacts in the world and the way that it sees its ability to affect the world so if you're talking about like the way that somebody moves in like a crossfit gym uh trying to squat or just like the way that they do that like you'll see you'll if you if you have a trained eye for it you can really un- like unpack a lot of like okay, they, they probably sit a lot for work because they're really jacked up in this and this and that. And it's a very, like, 
I don't know. I, f- I find it very fun. I, it's interesting while you were talking about um, humans and animals. I was thinking a little bit actually about any kind of life because it all moves. So one of my favorite words is thigma nasty, and that's plants reacting to different things and mm-hmm. actually moving along kind of a trained a trained way. Um, what what do you think about all life in general moving, or are you're specifically interested in animals and maybe 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 primarily humans? Mm, I think uh, humans are the easiest to understand because I like I you know I have that same similar like primate perspective. Um, but when you're talking about like yeah, I didn't I, I guess I was thinking be just because we, we got chickens in front of us, I was like thinking <laughs> we got chickens in front of us and it's great. Um, and they're just clucking away, pe- or not clucking really, they're just pecking pecking around at grass. Yeah, um, little, yeah little teenage chickens. Little teenage chickens and uh, yeah, plants do move in a very interesting way and. Uh, both on the micro time scale, like the way they sw- sway in the wind um, or in the reaction to the elements, uh, but also on the macro scale, like uh, over the course of years and um, decades, like the way that a tree grows uh, towards the south, like towards the sun. And if you get a grove of them, they grow very interestingly, they kind of like fan out. And it's a very interesting, slower type of movement, um, but it is still movement. Um, yeah. Think they're nasty. So, it's one of my favorites. So, you would say, though, that primarily humans, it sounds like, kind of, or primarily animals, is what your focus is in your studies. Uh, yeah, just because I've coached CrossFit, um, I've coached some crew, and I am learning jiu-jitsu. It's, those are all, like, very varied, very, very different and very varied ways of, like, human applying either power or um position on like on a system whether it's when you're talking about rowing it's a human body applying torque to an oar which is like a it's a pivot point around the oar which is like a 10 foot oar and like so the pivot point you have control over like three feet on your side and then it goes out on the outside of the rigger and that's and then it goes like another like six or seven feet and like applying that torque around that pivot point is a very interesting like dynamic problem of like trying to have the most power output um and then when you talk about crossfit it's like uh moving weight or moving the body and uh, repeatedly for repetitions uh at in a small amount of time for high intensity which is another problem so like movement efficiency movement positioning and like the the engagement of muscles so that you can keep applying power um, without stopping basically and without jacking yourself up and putting yourself in like putting way too many janky reps in and then blowing out your elbow for instance and then jujitsu it's another problem of apply of uh, of trying to get into position over in in this within a system which is a flat plane and another human being uh, and then gravity acting upon both of you simultaneously which is a very interesting like try like the the positioning in jujitsu you 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 use the ground and your body and the other person in in a, in a synchronized system to get into different positions and ultimately I mean in the sport of jujitsu is submit them or gain or score points but it's a very interesting problem of moving your body and like using another thing so it's like when I also slackline too which is another very interesting avenue into human movement and that is when you're you're that's a system where you're suspended it, it's gravity in the air 
and then the slack line, which is a long, thin trampoline. And the way that you interact with that with that thing in midair and bounce around it is a very like interesting physics physical problem in the same way jujitsu is. But it's only your within slacklining, it's your body and the slackline within jujitsu. It's like there are so many variables, but the the way that you, you apply the human body and human movement and human the human brain and consciousness to these problems can create all of these different like art forms of just like applying it and using using and like selecting for the the right body so like a rower is going to look very different from an elite crossfitter which is going to look very different from a 120 pound uh jiu-jitsu world-class black belt versus um a, a, the goofy stoner kid that slack lines mm-hmm. and bounces around on it and and but the, the the body types that are attracted to it to each discipline is amazing but then when you take the the body type that is suited for one thing and then try to apply it to another thing in in a proper manner and getting them to use their bodies in different ways can create this cross-pollination rather than specialization mm-hmm. which is so interesting and that's sort of what's kind of exploding with crossfit and exploding in mixed martial arts it's very very cool it is indeed very <laughs> very cool so you're you're a student of movement mm-hmm. what else are you a student of um currently a student of medicine at the university of south florida marsani college of medicine like on a technical level when I like taxes for like student and then it's like where and it's like oh at USF like that's it that, okay okay tell us about that a little bit um I have so I went to I went to school in so like I when I consider when I think of like an academic institution like a university or um a higher you know like any any academic like diploma based learning um, I sort of couch it under this like big broad umbrella of like an, a way of learning. So um, I like went. I grew up in Lee, New Hampshire, and then I went to high school there um, at Oyster River, and then I went to did my undergraduate education at Tufts University, um, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and then I took four years off from like academic learning. Um, well, I, but I also took some night courses at Harvard Extension School. Um, after undergrad to like fulfill pre physician assistant requirements, and then from there, because I, at that point I wasn't sure like oh do I want to do medicine do I want to do PA school do I want to just be an EMT for a little while because I was also taking EMT courses at, during that point, um, just like a big like ah, I don't know what to do, and then um, I did that for a couple four years uh, off of school for four years uh, coach for a couple years there too. Um, and then I applied to Morsani College of Medicine in 20, what year would that be? 14, 14. 15? 14. 14. And then started med school. And uh, as a student of medicine, it's a very interesting, it's, it's sort of like the trade version of all of the education that I've received so far because a lot of um, education, like diploma-based education, had been very... Um, Abstract. So you're learning biology. You're learning calculus. You're learning um, like the Renaissance arts of like or like Byzantine art, you know, or Byzantine history. It's like all very abstract and not applicable necessarily in everyday life, or for a specific trade. And uh, medical school is very interesting in that it, it there is a, sm- a large amount of didactic and, and uh, theory base. 
uh, but there's also um, a very professional clinical like application to it. So it's uh, like the, the bleeding between this classroom and the clinic where you're actually learning your trade um, of medicine, of, of being a physician is very interesting. Like that, that kind of went over. So what then drew you specifically to being a physician versus kind of pursuing those other alleyways? What was the mm. cement that really kind of glued that in? Mm, for me, it's it was sort of like the natural. So like in the same way that like a tall, like six foot six, like 230 pound fella, like lanky, long limbs, short torso, like long arms, long, you know what I mean? Like that kind of body is driven towards... Um, towards rowing because of the proportions the height the all of it like for me my natural inclinations of liking to help people and liking science puts me at an intersection that sort of gravitationally like drops me down towards medicine it just fits me very well because if you just like helping people there but you don't like sciences you don't like the hard sciences you just or you or you or it, it weeds you out because it's just not your thing but you really want to help people in, in medical con- anyway Whole different conversation. <laughs> sorry, sorry, rambling. Uh, but so if I want, if I like medicine, or if I like, if I like helping people, I can go many different routes. I can, you know what I mean. I can mm-hmm. do like the That's nonprofit. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't need to go into medicine that way. If you just like sciences, you can do research. You can do the academic stuff. You can get a PhD, and you can push the human knowledge in a frontier that has never been pushed before that we know of and it's like that's a very cool avenue of 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 approach but if you don't like people you just don't like people and like you're gonna do your do your little project that's your thing and that's we need people like that but if you like helping people and you like um science it you it kind of you have like medicine is the natural intersection and there's and within even within that intersection there's a lot of fuzziness in each direction so if you don't really like the sciences but you kind of tolerate them and you really like helping people you can do a lot of really cool clinical stuff nonprofit stuff it's, you know there's a big window there's a big window absolutely do you see where you fit in in that picture or do you see yourself practicing a certain type of medicine mm, i I um, have an imagined sense of the kind of medicine that I want to practice, but I don't think it does not exist in its current form. And it is a still burgeoning field uh, that like there is no precedent within Western medicine for what I want to do. And it will be a weird development of me like trying to create it rather than sort of uh, seeing like, oh, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon that works primarily on knees. Like that's a very specific field that exists already and you can jump into it and that's like a long-term goal where you understand the track towards it whereas the, the kind of uh, I like to call it the, what I've been calling it a psychedelic psychiatry is sort of it isn't in it, it hasn't been created yet and but the because the research is the, the like the peer-reviewed double-blind sort of studies that is the basis of evidence-based medicine is still in the works but it is something that needs to be done and I think that's a very cool avenue for things to go towards absolutely absolutely um what draws you to that if you don't mind discussing um so like just just the literal like latinized like what what the, the words mean psychedelic psychiatry so psych is soul um or or i guess no yeah psych is soul and then delia is or delic is opening and so so soul opening is psychedelic and uh psychiatry is psych is soul again 
and iatri or iatros is uh, medicine. So uh, like soul medicine. So so soul opening and soul medicine. That's what, like if you think of it in that like literal what the Latinized words mean. Um, that's what draws me to that is there. There's so much good clinical work that can be done in medicine. There's like people. We goodness knows we need primary care physicians. That is there is a you hear about this shortage all over the world, especially in underserved rural areas. There is a need for physicians. Um, but there. Like, to me, it feels like you are addressing a problem too far downstream. Like, you, yes, you, we need to get these poor folks, um, like, proper medical care so we can prevent hypertension, diabetes, and all, all the metabolic conditions. But when you are talking about, like, the, what, like, what are we really seeing, what kind of a problem are we really seeing, is, to me, it feels like there is a grave and a, a grave pandemic of mental, of mental, like mental, spiritual, emotional anguish and pain, and like trauma, trauma basically across the board within, around, around the Western world. And there are a lot of causes for this that we can discuss later. Um, but the, the treatment modalities that exist currently don't, like there are no treatment modalities that are effective. So um, SSRIs, they kind of work. They work for like they're, they're profoundly effective for like 10% of the population. But for the other 90% of the population, they don't, they, they work about as well as placebo, about as well as meditation practices. So it's like, well, would you rather, would you rather put something, anyway, that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> um, so SSRIs don't, are, they're, they're, they are effective. They are a good tool, but not for everything. In the same way, you don't use a, a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. Mm -hmm. like, like there are specific tools. For, and so to address this grave, like mental health, spiritual health, emotional health crisis that exists, I believe, within the Western world, we need the proper tools to address it. And there are, there aren't, it's, it doesn't, there's no, there are no tools. So it's like, it's for psychiatrists, for people that are trying to address this, this mental health uh, issue, it's like you're giving a surgeon a spoon and telling them to do open heart surgery like they, it's not the proper tools and that's what SSRIs that's like you know like lithium all of those like like brain modulating things that we have it, it, it modulates it and it works but it's not necessarily the proper tool for you know a, a normal like mother of like two who who like just got divorced from her you know like it's like like for that kind like not what what is the proper treatment modality and within uh within indigenous within uh more native traditions uh that are tied to the landscape tied to um a, like an unbroken chain for the past like 50,000 generations goodness knows how long humans have been like tribal for there there have been aspects of 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 like emotional healing within the context of like a within like a ceremonial context uh, where where emotional work can be done and it's closed and it's like there, there there's a lot of aspects to it so it's not necessarily a psychedelics in terms of substances but it's psychedelics in terms of like the spiritual the organization of of the context so it's like what I, I mean granted I'm saying this without having ever been to a psychiatrist's office without having ever shadows a psychiatrist so maybe I'm maybe I'm puffing hot smoke and just like you know, being one of those kids like, ah, oh, no blood for oil, you know, just like putting that out there, you know, like that kind of like, there are more, there are more complex issues at play. But that said, it's, there's, there's, there's so much to a more 
to a different approach to mental health and just defining mental health, defining emotional health, defining spiritual health that creates these downstream disorders of maybe of like of of not maybe not necessarily I'm running what what would you like to say? What would I like to say? So, so there was a lot there. there a lot there. Went, there were so many directions. You have so much to say about it. I can tell, um, mm-hmm. and that's wonderful. Um, so, a few different things that I wanted to kind of tease out of it um, were uh, something that I was reminded of is uh, a practice that is engaged in a kind of um, nationwide for correcting our infrastructure Mm -hmm. and it's known kind of within the business as patch it and pray (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it that's sincerely what it seems like a lot of mental health um, care provision is today Mm -hmm. it is we don't understand it or we don't have the ability to fix it so we'll kind of patch up these holes right here try to make it look smooth appear smooth on the Mm -hmm. surface but really there's some huge underlying problem and when you think about it a person really is equatable to infrastructure in many senses mm-hmm. um so that i thought was really interesting it was interesting um and i know that we'll talk about it more later um because i know you um <laughs> <laughs> it's tribally uh, and mm. and ancient practices but something i want to explore right now is um spirituality mm-hmm. um you brought up the soul and spirit multiple times would you consider yourself a spiritual person Hmm. that's a very interesting question because it would to me imply that there are non-spiritual people and i would argue that everybody is it's just whether or not you're connected to it or not okay so yes so so yes by your definition Would you consider yourself spiritual? Yes, by definition. By my definition, um, the log- it logically follows. Yes, I am a spiritual person. You are person. a spiritual person. So did you have any kind of spiritual upbringing or um, in your childhood or youth? Yes. Um, uh, my, my mother was raised Catholic. Uh, my parents are both Korean. Uh, my mother, oh goodness, oh, I'm putting myself on the spot. My mother is from like from the Seoul area, and my father is from the Busan area, which is more south, and Seoul is more north. Um, and it's a very small country, so it's not really that far. But they're <laughs> regionally very distinct within Korea. Um, and my father was, uh, his parents were, my grandparents were, ra- were more like towards the Buddhist uh, traditions of Korea. And uh, my mother was raised Catholic, and uh, her, my grandparents are Catholic as well. And my mother and father together, they're not super, my mother does my dad doesn't really have, he doesn't really practice um, a religion of any specific way. My mother is still now practicing, a practicing Catholic. And uh, when they had us, my mother, my parents, they moved to Lee, New Hampshire, um, where not really a large Korean community. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of us, but not a whole lot in New Hampshire. Um, and there's a very strong Korean Methodist tradition um, of like Methodists went over to Korea and they went ham. And then they, so now as Koreans have immigrated to the United States, the Korean Methodist communities are tend to be, when you see a Korean church, it tends to be a Methodist church, which is a, oh, I don't know, I don't know the branches, but it's not Catholic. 
And so my parents, Protestant of some sort. And so my mother, when, when we were growing up, we went to a Korean Methodist church in Greenland, New Hampshire. Um, and that was the faith that my mother brought us to because it was a Korean community and it was a Christian community. And my mom was like, ah, good enough. <laughs> so, so that was what I was, I went to church, you know, uh, uh, protestingly, um, for most of my childhood up until like early teens. And then I went through a very rebellious, almost militant, I would say militant atheist phase. Uh, in high school like I was kind of a dick I was like yeah I was went overboard you know like the the harsh rejection of of that of that faith and then I became I chilled way the fuck out in like college and then but I was very it was like an atheism like there's just like didn't even think about it didn't even consider that spiritual dimension uh, throughout college and then from a lot of like that post-college, that four years um, while I was working and taking classes, she was just very like, meh, I don't know what's going on. And not, and not thinking about it. And not even thinking about the, the fact that I'm not thinking about it. And then um, over the last couple of years, I've developed a, a, I wouldn't call it, I don't know if I would call it a spiritual, but I think I would call it oh, a like religious practice. because, But not to any established deity, not to any established um, thing just like my thing mm -hmm. all right so you are a student of um a student of medicine you're a student of movement are you a student of anything else or would you consider yourself a student of anything else i think movement encompasses so much that mm -hmm. i'm okay with movement first and medicine as a technical tax for reason <laughs> like for the government and <laughs> Uh, so f yeah, I think that's about it because every, I, I can't think of many things that don't fall under movement that I would, that I also am a student of. I mean, yeah. So and with that kind of, let's talk about, because I know that that is a big portion of, uh, you identifying also as a coach. Mm -hmm. So you are a coach. Yes, I am a coach and I, I like the word coach over teacher because for me, uh, in my head, as a coach, you are chasing performance within an individual, another individual. Um, that is your goal, is that is your hunt, is you're chasing that performance for that individual. Whereas a teacher, um, by its very definition, teaches. They, there is a student, there is a teacher, and there is a necessary like flow of information. Um, and that, I think that is relevant for certain specific roles. But for me, I identify and am and much happier with the idea of a coach because uh, a teacher, there's only, there's only so much attention that a teacher can give for a student. And as you add more students, it necessarily dilutes your ability to focus on that individual. And, uh, and to me, almost dilutes the ability to teach and identify as, a, as an effective teacher. So if you see my brother, uh, he teaches at a high school in Yarmouth, and we have a lot of discussions about education and how do you teach. And um, he, he like knows individuals that are doing like Teach for America um, and and teaching like at, in underserved urban areas where they have like thirty kids to a classroom and they're all rambunctious <laughs> little kids, you know. And it's like how like you know it's like if you had if it was a one on one like mentor relationship teacher relationship, then you can be an effective like goodness knows you could change a kid's life that way if you give eight hours a day of like focused attention, you can change their lives. But if you get one teacher to 30 kids, 35 kids in a small classroom that is underfunded, it's like, goodness, like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. um, but for me as a coach, um, to me as a coach, you can't, like, if you are 
able to think on a, on meta levels, it's like you don't necessarily need to teach. I don't need to teach people things. I just need to get them to perform, and and or get them to be able to perform to their abilities, to their potential. And so you maybe it's for me. I've been finding myself as a coach, trying to create systems that are that are getting performance out of mm-hmm. people that are that are able to like let them do it themselves so that I don't need to stand in their way for them. Like I am not the conduit for them to 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 their performance. They are their own conduit and I'm creating a system like a path, like clearing the trail for them so that they can just roll down it. And for me that is whether like coaching in CrossFit you can have like having a coach ecosystem like that's that like a hierarchy or a team of coaches and then maybe I don't necessarily do hands-on one-on-one coaching with an athlete but I coach my coaches and they coach the athletes so you can create like a like a like a swarm thing going on there or for slacklining um we have like back out back of this place we have a couple slacklines set up and it's set up specifically so that there is a like a handrail so you're you're walking on your own trampoline thing and then you have these side trampolines and getting that like creating systems of slack lines to facilitate a, a total novice who has never been on a slack line before to get them to the point where they can stand one legged within like 15 minutes is unreal and that's something that if i were to if it was me holding their literally holding their hands on a slack line i might get them to be able to do that in like an hour but it'd be stressful they'd be like oh i don't want to use your time up you're being so patient you know that kind of thing but the slack line the system is ever is totally, completely, one hundred percent patient with you. It will learn at your pace, um, and maybe you jack it up because you want to learn too fast and you get frustrated. But it's not the it's not the slackline's fault. Uh, but you know, if you're talking about a system of two individuals, I'm the teacher, you're the student, and there's the slackline in this problem, and I'm trying to get you across it like like whipping a bull. It's like there's only there's you know there's some necessary friction because there there are multiple like egos going on. Uh, but if I'm a coach and I stand off to the side, set up the system and have a student in, engage, interact and learn from the system, not from me, uh, but maybe me indirectly, then you can have this really interesting like, OK, now let's let's set up like 18 of these systems and then like throw people at it. And th- there only needs to be one me. And then I don't even even need to set up the slack lines. Maybe other people can start innovating in the more specific ways within a given geometry of trees or or posts that we, you know, there's like all this wild stuff. Well, it's interesting because it's almost like you make the system um, either in your kind of definition, not necessarily the coach, but it's like that meta situation where you're the coach of coaches and the system becomes Mm -hmm. the actual individual's coach. So it removes those multiple egos and makes it this kind of egoless dimension where the only person with the ego is the person learning. So like you said, the only time you're going to get hurt or bucked off of the system is because of you mm-hmm. and it's all part of that learning process agreed and and to me the why i like it so much this way is because it is it is like logarithmically scalable whereas a whereas a more teacher like direct student learning that is uh that is like proportional like there is mm-hmm. no like it, you know if i were to so like let's say i'm trying let me think of it this way so like with a massage therapist so like I'm a great massage therapist. I'm trying to get a lot of massage therapists out in the world. A lot of massage happening. That's what I want. I want. I want. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? It'd be the greatest thing. Who wouldn't feel better after a great back rub? You know, like who doesn't? Like you kind of have to be a jerk, um, or real. You know. Anyway, 
Anyway, so let's open up those soft tissues. That's what we want in this world. Is so I'm a great massage therapist. So let me let me teach a seminar where I teach like eight people over a weekend, and that like get eight more massage therapists out there. So every weekend I'm pumping out eight massage therapists who are pretty skilled, and they're going off and massaging people for me. Um, that's effective. Uh, you you know over the course of a lifetime, you can really like steady steady work. You can really get that change out in the world. But let's say. But that that's that like proportional scalability where like the teacher teacher relationship um, and it works, but it's proportional, mm-hmm. um, but not logarithmic. That's not how you light the world on fire with massage. <laughs> oh God! How Can amazing! Can we use that slogan? Yeah. Like, if you ever run for president, you on a t-shirt? Oh, <laughs> who wouldn't? And but let's so if my goal is opening up soft tissues, I want. And, like, let's say I'm trying to figure out the squirrely coach way, like, my, my perspective on the matter. I'm tr- Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, everybody everybody in the United States can get a lacrosse ball. Anybody. Like, order off of Amazon. It's, like, a dollar. If you have if you have Prime, it's two-day shipping for free. It's, like, yeah. boom. It's there. And you have no, no real excuses other than laziness or, or lack of time. that you But you make or, time. Or internet. Or internet, or, or dollar, or dollar. Let's say okay, but <laughs> feasible. Or you can share. You can, or you can use yeah. a softball. Who knows? Anyway, you can get squirrely enough. So everybody has access to a ball-shaped object, and what I can do instead of me teaching people to massage people, uh, what I can do is I can teach people to massage themselves. So it can. So then the issue is how do I dis- disseminate the basic knowledge of how do you apply this hard ball to your calf. Uh, to work out a knot so you don't have charlie horses after a long run that kind of thing like how do i how do i teach how, how do you get that the massaging to happen not necessarily me teaching the massaging to happen um and that to me is what is draws me to the coaches it's logarithmically scalable so for slacklining i can it's like if i teach if i handhold somebody through i can teach a couple people a day if i set up 50 slackline sets, I, I, we can get 100 people, 150 people, 200 people to learn how to slackline in a day. Easy. And that, and then they, and then they, because it's not them teaching with, like, me, me trying to teach them how to coach, how to teach another person, it's just set up a bunch of slacklines in this kind of way, and then, hey, everybody learns how to slackline. You don't need to learn. It doesn't take that much knowledge. It doesn't take that much prerequisites. You just create the system, and then boom, another, in the same way. So if I were to create an internet video watched by a million people they they learn how to massage their calves then they can t- tell steve their buddy uh how to like massage their calf too so it's like a such a small barrier to entry rather than massage therapy where you might be like oh goodness i have to teach you like the whole flow how do you work the lymph out and like all that kind of stuff absolutely absolutely so you are a student you are a coach you are also a writer. Yes. I'm, I like to think of myself as a writer because, uh, to me, all you, need to be a writer, all you need to do to be a writer is to write regularly. Um, and so if you are a playwright, writing one play is great. Um, and, yeah, you can write on those laurels, especially if you win, like, a Nobel Prize or whatever for it. But to be a true playwright to me, you'd have to write. You'd be, always be writing, always be doing your craft. And so it's like... If like, what does it mean to be like? How do you define yourself as an athlete? It's like if you move your body if, in an athletic manner regularly, you're an athlete. Um, you, there's not like a big barrier to entry. If you want to be a competitor, competitive powerlifter, competitive weightlifter, how how do you consider yourself that? Like some people might say, oh, you need to have these numbers. 
but for me, it's like if you compete, literally, if you literally compete in weightlifting, if you literally compete in powerlifting, you are by definition a competitive weightlifter. And like that kind of, that is what I like to think of. My, that is how I like to think of myself literally as a writer is I try to write frequently, often, and that hones my craft and hones my practice. And that makes me a writer. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm a gifted writer. I wouldn't say I'm a good writer. I'm just a writer. Because those superlatives are some, for someone else to say. Mm, I was going to say there are probably people that would argue with you about that. <laughs> so let's transition a little bit then. Mm-hmm. Um, before I die, I want. Before I die, I want to be a grandfather. You want to be a grandfather. Not a great-grandfather, not just a father, a grandfather? A great-grandfather, that's, ask, that's asking either for a very, very long life to be a grandfather, great-grandfather or for my children to have kids really fast. And <laughs> I don't know, like, it's, or both, you know? It's like, it's like you can get, like, a, if you can get a small camel through a very large needle, like, I have a needle. It's like that kind of situation. Like, I, like, I think grandfather is much more, like, it's not asking for too much on either side. <laughs> so <laughs> why though why 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 grandfather why is because grand you literally grandfather and being a father by being a father <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a, i guess i should change the question you're yes, being you very should. squirrely very wiggly very squirrely um <laughs> what appeals to you about being a grandfather or a father for that matter um it is a very like high it is a like very meta like love and approach to things so it's really yeah I think I know being a father especially a biological father would will rock my world and be a whole lot and I'll be like I'll see this little nugget of like life and I'll be like whoa this is a lot and it's looking at me and I'm looking at it and we're just like whoa uh, that'll be a lot like that that child thing like being a father will be a whole lot but I also think that being a grandfather will be a much slower um, sustainable like frantic love than being a father uh, because it's like oh I don't have to deal with like baby <laughs> I, I, I love to deal with the baby but I don't have to deal with the baby you know what I mean um, and being the, and that grandfather role is very interesting to me because it's you're, you're separated enough from that direct love that like whoa love like you're it's still whoa but like less like a couple decibels lower like it's not 11 <laughs> it's like a loving. six you know yeah yeah and like within a lot within from, from my understanding and reading, within many shamanic, indigenous, um, spiritual practices of, of like passing down the, the, the tribal knowledge of your, of your peoples, uh, a lot of that is done not from father to son. It is done from grandfather to grandson. And the reason why is because the, 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 the father to son connection is really close. The nodes are too close. The gravity is very strong. The, the electro repulsion, however you want to think of it, those two points, they're very close. And there's a lot there. The father can, if you know, if they have un, unfulfilled dreams, they can pour those maybe unfairly into the son or the daughter, for that matter. And that, that closeness is a little too, there's a lot there. 
but when you're talking about the grandfather to grandson or granddaughter the 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 there's enough life that has passed between them that it's like not as close it's not like oh you got to do all this stuff that i can't do it's like you, you can do whatever you want to do and it's like yes i can have that approach to my daughter or my son but it's it's like you know it'll i imagine it'll be easier to have that distance and that like more zen kind of approach to things uh when it's a granddaughter or grandson absolutely and so this is kind of the um second time you've brought up um, shamanism or, or um, kind of that tribal affiliation and the first time was in conjunction with what you foresee as your line of work and this time it's in conjunction with your family and in terms of a legacy um, do you foresee or do you want a legacy um, more in terms of that familial kind of um, that lineage or, or more in terms of your work and potentially how that ties in with your appreciation of shamanic arts and practices. I know that was a lot. <laughs> to me, they are the same thing because the, the amount of love and care and attention and mindfulness and just just loving all over that I want to apply to 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 the people in the world that I, I know will affect great change in, in their own way. Um, I can only do that on that proportional scale. I can't I can't really pour that all that all of that love, all of that intention into everybody <laughs> into everybody the the Chicken, the roost, rooster? Chicken? Uh, yeah, rooster. Chickens, don't roosters crow. Roosters crow. Okay. Chickens typically don't. Okay. Uh, sorry. We're, we're chicken stock. Anyway, um, that, that, that logarithmic growth, I can affect that change in terms of a wider work or um, effort-related legacy. But in terms of a blood legacy, um, that is on, on that proportional scale. And those are the individuals because of just by the, their very nature of how much attention that I can pour into it, how much I can affect the system that they're interacting in on a daily level. I can not ensure, but I can like put stack the stack the cards in a very interesting favor to have them fuck shit up for me, you know, down the line and for them to like do all of their things for their people. You know, like it's I don't want I don't want my legacy to be a single thing. I think I want it like what I think of it as is I want to be the initial spark for a very large and very cool and very necessary uh, forest fire that clears the landscape for something else. And I it's like, yeah, it's important. It, I like for, you know, from my firefighting standpoint uh, to, you know, the fire firework forensics to understand where and what caused a house fire like what was it a was it electrical fault was it a gas leak was it you know a cigarette burn because somebody was falling asleep smoking a cigarette like that that reason what caused the fire is important but what is more important is the fact that there was a fire and it burned a house down and or that it cleared the forest fire and it's like it, it's like i don't care if nobody knows what caused the fire 
but I do care that there is a fire, that there is a change that happens. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like, Eugene Kim was the spark that started this specific <laughs> fire. It's like, that. It's like sure, put it on a plaque, but um, I hope it burns away during the next fire um, or the next fire after that. Um, and who knows if my kids caused that or who knows if my grandkids caused that. Who knows if some other dude, Carl, that went to like a CrossFit class. And went, you know, it doesn't matter who causes these fires, but I just want that there to be fires, to be great upheavals and change, especially when things get very stagnant. So you want that legacy to be that you were an agent of change or a facilitator of change or a spark of change. I want change to have happened as a result of me. I don't necessarily want my legacy to be an agent of change because, I mean, yes, that can be. Well, like, let me think of it. Let me put it this way. So when you, there, there are like a couple of different ways to measure a master. Um, like you can, like when you're talking about a mastery of a subject. So like who can like lift the most weight, who can paint the most beautiful thing. Like that is a very cool thing. But to be like, how do you measure the quality that the emphasis of a master is to me how many masters do they create how much change do they incite in the world because it's like one thing if you have all of this talent and potential and you store it up in yourself and it dies with you it goes to the grave with you that's one thing but it's also another thing if you let that roll out of you if you let it in, in, inspire others and they create other masters and they create other masters that's what's so cool about jiu-jitsu for me is in brazilian jiu-jitsu that specific lineage is that there is a lineage you can you can trace it to the source the first person who ever developed Brazilian jiu-jitsu who learned it from the Japanese and went to Brazil and taught it to his family, the Gracie family, that it, you can trace it like how many steps away from that first dude who developed this, this sport, this tradition, like how close are you to that? The, 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 that threw me off. He just, so you can trace that back. So mm -hmm. you appreciate that kind of lineage mm -hmm. aspect. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know if he wants to add or if he is just very territorial about the frying yard. I think he is. I think that might be it. Okay. So before you die, you want to be a grandfather. Mm -hmm. You want to... He does as well, apparently. Mm -hmm. You want to start change on a very meta scale. I want change to happen. You want change to happen in your lifetime? I mean, because before I die, I want, yes, I guess it, by necessity, yes, before, yes okay. in my lifetime, I want, or at least I want to see the start of change. So, like, maybe I'm the spark and the tinder's going up as I'm going out. And then I know, but I know that there's a nice little bundle of kindling on top of the, on top of the tinder. And then there are some nice sturdy little twigs and then logs and then big ass logs and then trees on top of that. So this is going to burn the whole place down. Like, that's cool. Uh, if I know, but like, if I see things set up in that direction and be like, yeah, that's pretty rad. I'm okay with it. Just seeing like the start, but it'd be, I, I think it would, what I want is to see it happen or at least see the things line up. I don't necessarily need to see it happen. It'd be cool. I don't think I'll see the end of it, like where things will go. I think this is a very weird moment in time uh, to be alive because you're at this weird tipping point transition, like the edge of things, uh, which is the most interesting, but the weirdest. And so it's like, we don't know what, what the internet is going to be. We don't know where the ecosystem will be in the next 50 years because of all the weird farming and agriculture and how crazy widespread it is now. Um, yeah, I just want the change to happen. 
Do you want anything else? I want... I want to see love outweigh fear. And for me, there are... On the emotional... On the true core emotional coin of the of the of like the human spirit or just consciousness in general maybe not even human just just the the consciousness core coin the the two sides of it are fear and love and you can see fear in any it's easy to identify fear and it's easy to identify love in in animals especially because they're pretty binary with it like you like the dog like there there's a dog savage here and he's adorable he's this big rotty uh pit bull mix but he is so afraid you can see it in his actions you can see it in the way that he positions his body and like you know if everybody's chilling in a circle like all we're just giving the other dogs a whole bunch of loving uh savage uh, he's this big lovely dog but he'll sit off to the side like away in a corner away from everybody else but still kind of watching you know he's but it's you can see the fear in him or you know with with a cat with a cat snuggling and rubbling stuff all over you can see the love just like all over it and it's easy to see um and i see so much fear in the world i see so much um as a result of fear hate and pain um and i want to see that replaced with love um, or at least like love sort of work massaging its way the slow steady way that it does into uh, the hearts and consciousness of the world um, so that you know instead of pain and hate we see uh, growth and and you know, thumbs ups and high fives <laughs> you know I don't know just just replacing it just the there's so much fear and it's the the fact that we have social media, the fact that we have technology, and you can hear about a uh, like a school shooting in an instant. You can hear about it literally hours after, like before the bu- the blood has congealed in the school. People in Lebanon can hear about it. You know, like that kind of like, like that's crazy. That's a weird. That's a rapid spread of fear. Rapid. It's un unprecedented. You before you'd have to be like, oh, did you hear about that crazy thing that happened over there? You're like, no, bro, what happened? And then you play this weird game of telephone because it's like verbal, verbally, like person to person connection. And even when it was telephones, like even when, like fifty years ago when it was just like telephones and stuff, it was still you'd have to have a conversation. But now you can say, like a person can be like an organization, a Twitter account can be followed by five million people, and then in an instant, five million people can have a uh, hundred and forty bit like character bit of information and that's unprecedented in the history of the world and then those people can tweet it out and tell other people verbally or they can tell, send it out to their followers so maybe there are other five million followers that aren't and none of those followers are, are you know like lining up this ben, Zen, uh, Venn diagram and it's like unreal so it's like fear can spread like a fire like a contagious fire um, and panic can too. You can see it in like the way chickens, like the way they little blah, 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 blah. and then if you walk a little too close, and then one will start to like boop, and then the, all the other ones will start to flurry and scurry around. You can see the fear in them, and it's just like unreal. And like that on a million level, like it's it's crazy. But I want to see love outweigh fear because that'll like that's a harder project. It's easy for fear to spread. Fear spreads with just panic, but love spreads slowly. It is like the vines of a of a of a like a grapevine or like you know like like it's slow and steady and it can be burned and and then you got to start all over again but it's a project it requires gardening it requires tending for love to grow but 
it's possible, I think. Um, do I think it'll outweigh fear before my lifetime? Will I see it truly? Like, will I be able to know, like, oh, it's, oh, it's like, oh, boop, where the, t- the scales have tipped? Um, no, probably not. But, you know, in an ideal, in an ideal, like, what do I want? That's what I want, is to see it, to see it, to know and feel it, feel it deep, not just kind of, like, be told, like, oh, you knew, Eugene, this is your last five breaths. I want you to know love is that way of fear. And I'd be like, yes. But, like, I want to be able to see it and know in the world, not just in my community, not just in my relationship, but I want to, to know it. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and I had a few thoughts, um, while you were talking and it's interesting that you brought up um savage he is he's a sweetheart um but like you observed he is very fearful um and it's interesting because there is nothing but love given to him it's just that he was impacted at such such an age that it um or in a way that made it a trauma that is difficult for him to overcome Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting to think about that in terms of your goals and that um, both in what you want to see in the world and what you want to do um, in your profession Mm. that you want to to overcome that trauma Mm -hmm. and to help bridge that and not just patch it but to really heal it and so that that was just an interesting observation that I had Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, uh, another thing uh, is the spread of fear um, and, and really the perpetuation of ignorance and, and hate and a lot of really awful things about the world through social media. Um, it, I think it's kind of an interesting thought and you kind of observed um, the progression of technology but where it's going to move to from here and how we'll be able to use that to propagate and disseminate infinite information and perhaps, um, and I think we think of about it a, a little bit differently, but uh, perhaps in that way, grow love or improve improve that and tip that scale slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested, before you die, you want to be a grandfather, you want to see change, you want to see love outweigh fear, do you want anything else? You know, I'll be honest with you, those are the only ones that I, like, prepared and, like, know and think of. <laughs> Every time you interviewed someone you thought of? Yeah, it's just, like, <laughs> what would I answer? Like, these, uh, these, those are my answers, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I think those encompass a lot of ground and, like, very broad, different varying Venn diagrams of, like, what I can experience and see and want before I die. I don't think there's much more. Um, I mean, there's... Yeah, I mean, it'd be cool, but I'd have to live, like, to be a billion, you know? It's like, that's not realistic. That's like, if I'm talking about <laughs> genie wishes, sure, let's do that. <laughs> but with that then, so we've talked about life. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's discuss death a little bit more I intimately. I agree. When I die, I want... When I die, I want to return to the collective consciousness. And I don't know what that collective consciousness consciousness is. I don't know what that'll necessarily look like, but I want to know when when I'm dying that I'm returning to it. Um, Like during that moment of passing, during that like eyes rolling back and you're like, all right, like that's it, boom, done. During that moment, I want to know that I'm returning to something larger than myself. 
um, and more ancient than myself and probably cooler than myself. Do you have any idea of what that might look like or do you have any feelings towards what that might be like? No. It's a very... So there's this comic book called Swamp Thing <laughs> and there was a recent run of it. Um, there, there was like old Swamp Thing in like the 70s with... with I think Grant Morrison, and then there was a more recent run with Scott Snyder um, as the writer. And there's they have this very interesting like mythology that I really love, and it's this idea that there are three core like animating spirits or like vibes of the of of the universe. There is the green, there is the red, and then there's the rot. And the green is like all plant life. Um, like all green stuff like pretty obvious and then on the red is like all animal life any all animated like moving stuffs and then the rot is like mushrooms is the microbes the is the larva is like the insects is like all of that like re regenerative part of the world so you need all three in unison to really have a fully functioning world as we know it you need the renewal you need the rot you need the gross kind of smells to have things going uh, in order to have the green, in order to have the red, in order to have the transition between the two. And you need the green in order to grow stuff from the, from the sun. And you need the red in order to eat the green stuff and to rot. Um, because red stuff rots way better than green stuff. Or way faster, at least. Um, and what's interesting to me about that dichotomy, about the, those, those trans separations, is that for the green, it feels like the plants have a larger collective consciousness they have like all like all lilies kind of have the same thing going on they're all kind of going on the same wavelength they're not too different they, are, they grow very differently but they're very they're very like a single collective consciousness and they interbreed very well and that is at the cost of their great chem like to me at least it feels like their great chemical ability like they're great they're they're they're, they're like photosynthetic like chlorophyll based life they are their their sacrifice is a individual consciousness they sacrifice individual consciousness for the collective consciousness the red on the other hand animal life and especially humans we sacrifice the collective consciousness that that like uplink like like zahelu sort of thing going on like from avatar we sacrifice connection to that in order for a very pronounced individual consciousness and that individual ego consciousness can do a lot of really cool stuff. We can make planes. We can make, like, uh, we can, I don't know, make telescopes. We can do cool stuff as a result of an individualized uh, consciousness. But it comes at the cost of this connection to something greater and to something um, more satisfying, I feel like. Just deeper, more primal, more ancient. And I want to return to that ancient collective consciousness when I die. Um, for plants, they get to they they maybe they go to their individual consciousness afterwards, and they're like, oh, finally, I get to be alone, away from all the other lilies, away from all the other rose bushes. Maybe the sumac is like, I hate that other sumac; it's kind of a dick. But <laughs> as a part of the red, I want to return to the collective consciousness. I want to know what that's like because I feel like I have at certain points of my life during sturdy, certain ecstatic like altered states of consciousness that I've experienced that but like moments hours not 
millennia not a time without place um i want to know what that is like to 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 be a droplet going back to the ocean that's what i feel like it would like on a like that is what it is is a, a, a ring like a little bit of a little bit of dew from the desert on a thursday like that 20 years later on another monday because is rain above the pacific and gets to drop finally back into the ocean into the pacific ocean and that's that is to me the journey of consciousness and it'll be beautiful it'll be weird i don't know what it'll look like i don't know what it'll taste like i don't know what it'll smell like but i know it'll be really something crazy <laughs> have you thought about your moment of passing yes I want it to be something that I've never seen or heard of before because I feel like everybody, I want to go actively into death. I want to, I want to have like three of the following. Two would be okay. One I'll, I'll, I'll be all right with zero. I'd be pretty bummed if I got zero of these. Like I want like a smile on my face, a, a laugh in my belly, um, like a tear in my eye, a dance in my foot, you know, like I'm, I want to like be like during that moment, I want to be actively ecstatically transitioning into death. I, I don't want it to be a, I, maybe I do. I don't know. I, I want it to be something that I'm like, I don't, I know, I feel like I know what it would look like for somebody to transition into death passively, like in their sleep, comatose. But I don't think we have a tradition of people that can go ecstatically into death. Um, and I don't know if there has ever been a tradition of this, of like a culture that, that celebrates life so much to the point that, and death to the point that it, there's an active transition into it. But I want to experience something like that because then others can experience it. Maybe not... You, you know, but I don't like, I, I just want, I think that there are other ways to die than I, than I, than that is known in Western culture now. And I think that there are other ways to die that have not been written down that were only passed through tradition orally or experientially and they have died off or they are forgotten or they're about to be forgotten. And I think that there are other ways to die that are out there and perhaps more rewarding, perhaps more of a awesome belly flop into that collective consciousness ocean. But like I think that there are other ways, and I want to. I, I I want an unknown thing that I don't know yet, like an unknown unknown. Like I don't even know that I don't know it. That's a lot of not knowing. A lot. Um, and it's it's interesting because there are um, cultures, um, and I'm thinking of um, some of the indigenous peoples of the north, and um, mm. that actually will at least in some instances that have been described to me, they would actually go and seek their death. It would mm. be kind of their last, their last journey, their last mm -hmm. uh, medicine quest or, mm. or kind of that, that transition so that you're, it's not a passive waiting for death. It's going mm -hmm. to greet it. Mm -hmm. um, and that also kind of, and this is a whole nother can of worms. That we don't <laughs> have to even open, but the thought of euthanasia or in, in Greeks, it was a very uh, Greek kind of culture, uh, ancient Greek culture. It was a, a noble pursuit mm -hmm. was choosing your death and being able to enforce it. And so that, that to me is very interesting. And it's something that, um, in, even fairly recently, if you think about ancient Greek culture was 
acceptable mm-hmm. to pr- actively go and pursue one's death. And maybe ecstatically is not something that's heard of and w- is very interesting, but um, that's uh, definitely an, an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm, I'm interested, though, um, you've discussed kind of wanting this this whole new this whole new uh, world of pursuing death and and you discussed uh, people passively accepting death have you uh, seen or experienced death personally i have not seen i've not been affected by a death that i've seen yet um and like i say that because it's like i've seen a lot of bugs die i've seen i don't think i've seen a bird die um but like i've seen like i've only i did yeah, oh yeah 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 like like roadkill and stuff like that's pretty that's a bummer uh but i've never like like a larger animal that like emotionally affected me i've never seen that moment of passing um like but i i have had a dog pass um cody he was a lovely german shepherd golden retriever mutt and he was hit by a car but he was i didn't see him die um and he died on the side of the road and when my dad brought him back to the house he was already cold um, and so that was a very traumatic moment just to see like m- what I like this little fuzzy ball of love uh, be co- like one like one minute he's hot and loving and just wiggling around and just one of his snuggles uh, and then like the next time I saw him he was cold and lifeless and that was a very traumatic just like there was no there was no easing into that moment of me seeing him with like his de-animated body that was just a lot and so that really affected me but I've never seen a transition um and I, I don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to probably jack me up a lot, but it's a new novel experience that I know it's got to jack me up. You know, it's, I mean, I'm 27 year old, years old and I haven't seen a person die. If I was, I feel like if I was in a more indigenous, like light, the way people die in Western world is by, is by default because nothing else is working. You just kind of like, oh, all the, all the other holes that are plugged are plugged and we can't, going to happen and boom you die like just by default not an active positive death you have a negative death a death by negative action or just negative anyway uh so you have that death happening by default because we are like all their things aren't happening and then you also have death segregated from everybody else um i don't know many people that have seen people die i i seeing a cadaver seeing the the cadavers in the cadaver lab was like real like whoa this was the first dead human i've seen this is real weird but like in in a culture that might celebrate death rather than shame it and hide it away and call it uh you know you lose your battle with cancer it's like no you're not losing anything you're gaining you're gaining death which is which is a positive it's a it's a new experience and that is like within a culture such as that like that ex- celebrates death um perhaps you'd see a dead body before you're 27 you know it's like it's i i am as much of a victim and a perpetuator of this culture as everybody else that i meet and but i am actively trying to change it or at least trying to find new wiggly ways to push the cultural boundaries in the same way that like uh changing the word from faggot to gay like getting that transition just the word just shift away from that is like that's like that kind of cultural like sure it's gonna be real hard you know but it's like something like gotta push it somewhere somebody's gotta Mm -hmm. do it and i feel like that's at least something that i can try to do and i think that it's something that is um at least to a certain degree occurring especially with the popularization of hospice and i think that Mm. um that's something as as uh 
the, at very least, the United States population shifts towards it being a larger, older population. Um, we're seeing more and more of hospice and kind of the incorporation of family into the the dying process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that 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 you would agree that that is a good shift and, mm-hmm. and a direction that we want um, the uh, Western culture to move towards. Um, what about during your passing? Would you like your family or loved ones to be there? Would you do you envision that, or do you envision mm. it being kind of a solo journey? What What do you see? It'd be cool if it was like a ceremonial context with my loved ones who are comfortable with seeing a person pass and my passing. That'd be pretty rad. Um, that'd also be pretty rad to like go solo and like sort of seeking death in that same sort of like northern, like last final ultimate like medicine quest that'd be pretty red too um i don't know i'll sort of see what happens maybe if i become a grandfather that'll be like you know i want to be surrounded by my loved ones you know but if maybe i don't make it to fatherhood maybe i just stay like just here eugene um then maybe i'll go solo i don't know i'll uh hopefully i'll have a little bit of preparation um (laughs) Hopefully I'll, like, kind of know it's coming. At least get, like, a five minutes heads up. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> you know, just to get, like, like take a shower. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be, like, you know, a little bit of heads up. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. And whatever context it happens, it will be the context that it happens. And I, I, would, I can want other things, but it's, like, you know, a pendulum will swing. It will just keep swinging. And it can want to go laterally, but you know what? It's just going to keep going back and forth. After I die, I want the experiments of technology, civilization, mammals, and life to flourish sustainably. And the reason why it's such a weird wordy one is because there's a lot of of things that I think are that we take for granted right now as like solid absolutes. And I think that technology in terms of like like computers and like not like steel stainless steel knives and like like nets are a technology and those are experiments and we don't know where they're going to go and we don't know where we've been before with which is a lot there technology is one experiment so is civilization in terms of agriculture in terms of uh, domesticated societies um and and livestock and animals and humans um that's 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 an experiment um civilization and organizing humans in this way and these like mega cities and then i think mammals are an experiment in terms of like this it's only like within this like since the great extinction period that mammals have flourished and you know we used to be little tiny little rodents and before that it was like a bunch of dinosaurs and like it can be spiders next after we go you know who knows i hope it's not spiders that'd be really crazy but you know it's like mammals are an experiment we, we just happen to get the, like top bill right now and it's you know like maybe it's another ice age that like boom now it's spiders turn or grasshoppers who knows and i think life itself is an experiment that we are riding out and we don't know how long it's been going on for and we don't know how long it'll go on for in maybe in like a fungal form maybe like after all the maybe after all the spiders have given their last like hoorah then it's like fungus turn and fungus just ride it out into the into the like the great What's the word? Like after beyond? the big no the so the the Big Bang the big, and then the great like I thought it was the Great Beyond. 
Is it? Is that one like I, close? I, think, I feel like that's the expression. Like the the entropy, like the en- absolute entropy of the universe. So yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, keep life. Spiders. <laughs> spiders, spiders, <laughs> spiders, and fungus. Fungus are real cool, and a very interesting life form. And they're a very cool experiment, and they're real weird. They're like aliens, and we don't understand them. And so life, life is another experiment. So like I I I feel like all of these experiments are really cool, and I want to see them. Uh, get cooler and see where they go um, and I want to see them but I want to see them grow in a way that is sustainable and maybe not sustainable for the earth maybe it's necessary for like tech, the technological experiment to expand beyond the earth and then this is like the solar system and it's like goodness knows how far we'll go our technology will go maybe not even humans maybe just our technology will go very far I don't know it's a crazy experiment I don't know the, I don't know the variables I don't know the hypotheses that are going to happen but it's going to be really really cool and like technology itself like we don't know what the internet is going to be in like a decade we went from like motels hotels and holidays in to like Airbnb in like five years and now people you can rent out your home and like it's a, it's a weird world and we can cut out the whole like corporate it's weird it's real weird and like we have ubers now and like uber now has uber exchange where you can lease a car in the name of uber and pay it off by ubering with your leased by uber vehicle it's a weird world (laughs) so much uber Uber. it's like really like it's like technology is so bizarre and we don't know what the internet like just the internet like the like i remember hearing this article about like how they had to redo the ip like protocol because we were gonna run out by like 2025 or some like within like a decade or two we're gonna run out of ip addresses because the number of like smart devices like fitbits or or like gps devices have their own unique ip address and you know we're running into like like 20 billion like that was like that was our limit at with the old ip address like protocol and so they developed like i think it was like version six and this has like logarithmically more like trillions of trillions protocols possible so we're going to be able to ride this one out for probably a really really long time before we have to get the new protocol out but when you're talking about a world or an ecosystem where there are trillions upon trillions of interconnected like technological nodes it's like what it's like we're talking about like uh, we're talking about a network that is more almost more complex or as complex as life itself like Mother Earth Gaia, like that ecosystem, like there can be a shadow technological, like network neural intelligence of the internet once it's we got all these weird freaking nodes going on. Like we don't know what's gonna happen. Like we just don't know. Like we're we're in the we're in the first seconds of the first minutes of the first hours of the first days of the first years of the internet. We are on the front of a tsunami that is way bigger, way crazier, and way different than anything we've ever experienced and have, have probably ever been experienced before. Uh, and like we're, we're we humans with our opposable thumbs and our weird prefrontal gyri like we are we're able to use our hands and create these little things and then create machines that can create these little things for us because their things are getting so small we can't do it anymore with our own hands it's like we just have like we have like mammals able to create the technology to bring the earth itself like like rare earth metals alive in our technologies that it's like this weird like whoa, i don't know i don't know i'm just so <laughs> stoked and i like i know it'll be after i die that these things will happen and like that's like we're at this great intersection like two bubbles merging 
and it's like who knows what's gonna happen when the, like the purple bubble mer- merges with the green bubble and like the swirly massy bits like i don't know what's gonna happen and then what happens when it merges with another bubble i don't know but the intersections are where it's like the coolest and the weirdest and we're at a very weird intersection of all of these different experiments like coalescing and being a problem for each other and or a solution for each other in their own different ways and it's very weird it is very weird <laughs> It is very weird, and I had a couple of thoughts kind of while you were talking about Mm -hmm. it, Um, and uh, one of them is that as a part of a collective conscious, do you think that, or would you like to be aware of these changes? It'd be cool. It'd be also cool if it'd be like, time was not like a linear thing, and then I could kind of like be like, okay, what if like Alexander Hamilton was a zombie? And I can see what that world would have been like. like you, know, you know, like, it also, like, just, like, I could, like, play with it so that it's, like, all the possibilities, not just this one specific possibility. But, like, yeah, yeah, it'd be real cool. It'd be real cool to see what where things go in that part of the collective consciousness. Or maybe it won't matter to me because it'll be, like, we're on the 35th dimension and you're only on the third. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, that. that's, like, riffraff down there. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's to say? Um, so the, the other question is, it sounds like, um, you want to see change in all of these sectors in technology and animals and, um, and everything essentially. Do you want it to go a certain direction or do you foresee it going a certain direction? I want to see it in a direction where a love outweighs fear. An internet that is like omnipresent like even now i feel like fear rules the internet but we're getting to a weird turning point now where enough people are on it enough stability is on the internet now in terms of like online presences uh where love is necessarily outweighing fear like people are like real weird about the fact that like you got to use your facebook to log into a bunch of stuff but it's really cool like, I went, I grew up on a message board, GameFAQs, which is like a sub, and then more specifically, like a, like a secret message board called Life, the Universe, and Everything, which is like a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And like, it was like a very exclusive, it was like a weirdly exclusive because you need to have, like, I can, okay, I can talk about this for a while. <laughs> but basically, I was raised on an internet that was like the Wild West. So like, accounts had, account, you, 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 there were only a certain number of accounts that could access this message board. So like, your, your, you couldn't get banned. Like, you couldn't do really stupid stuff, but you, what you could do is be whoever you wanted because your username was, like, like mine was soon to be Hermit7323. Like, a, maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. But, like, who knows? Like, it was really, really <laughs> weird. Like, it was really bizarre. And, like, so you could be whoever you wanted. Like, there was this one dude who was, like, this Macedonian who loved, like, Japanese video games and it was just he was this bizarre individual and he had his persona and then there was like this weird romance drama between this one dude who went and dated this girl who were both like personas on the message board it was so bizarre but like it was you could create it was like this wild west but also because there was this wild west you could be a total asshole because you had anonymity you could say whatever you wanted you could just like and just like fill the board fill up the topic with like nonsense and you probably get banned but you probably wouldn't um but like and that was the that so that was like in the 90s that was like when i was growing up or like 2000s where it was sort of the really wild west just understanding what does it mean to have an online 
persona and avatar. And I developed that that sort of sense early on, which is great. And now that we're seeing Facebook sort of everywhere and like your your Facebook account, like people, you know, maybe when they were making MySpace, they were like, oh, this is just like a weird thing. And everybody forgot about their MySpace. But their Facebook accounts, mine goes back like seven years now. What about yours? I actually, uh, story for another time, uh, started a new one. So oh. I, yeah, mine um, doesn't go back until the start of school. But like, what did you, so like. my um, If you were to include both, it mm-hmm. would be um, the beginning of high school. And that's like a, that's like a long record of mm-hmm. like you as a person. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so like, if you, if you were to like be an asshole to somebody on Facebook. That's like being an asshole to somebody in real life. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird, like, There's continuity. Now. Yeah, a continuity and accountability that mm-hmm. it that wasn't there before in the internet and, like, before wasn't on YouTube comments. That's why there's such a weird, like, like cesspool of people. But, like, like <laughs> as this continuity, as this stability is added to the internet, it's really interesting to see, like, now we're seeing, like, really cool movements. We're seeing, like, like so much of the Bernie Sanders campaign is, like, internet-based. And it's, like, really bizarrely so. But, like, because of these inter- continuity, maybe not Facebook, but some sort of, like, there is a continuity there. And the people are building relationships that are that are um, utilizing the internet, which are, and, and that's, that's another, like, reprogramming that's going to need to happen is, like, if somebody, if I were to romance and date and fall in love with somebody on the internet, that is just as real as falling in love with somebody in person. It's a very different way to fall in love, and it's a very unique and novel kind of love, but it's possible. And it's not like it's real life, not like face-to-face is real life anymore. Like Through the internet, it's still real life because there's a continuity, there's a persona, there's an avatar that is still there and is still having this interaction, is still feeling these feelings. And it's a very interesting, like, that's how we get we're getting that's how love is starting to outweigh fear on the internet it's not quite at the tipping point yet but like when people are like not dicks to each other on the internet and they were polite to not not because when you're polite to people face to face with you know it's like because you don't want to like start a fight but like on the internet if you if everybody starts being like a reasonable rational human being and letting love outweigh fear then we can do like really crazy stuff like we can start organizing we can have political campaigns that are funded by like five dollar donations by like 10 million people mm-hmm. you know it's like we don't know what can happen and when when love outweighs fear that's like such a like with all of these experiments it's like goodness we can have some weird futures but cool weird but weird It's really, yeah, it's really interesting um, talking about movements, and one of the things that I thought of was the Arab Spring and how that was used to organize um, Mm -hmm. groups of youth and how it's been used in a variety of um, movements here in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is, it's it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting problem of um, kind of this, and an interesting, as you've said, intersection (laughs) of this um, this transition from anonymity to accountability, stability, and continuity, um, and to this virtual reality uh, for some people replacing reality almost. So mm-hmm. it's it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of weirdness, a lot of kinks to be ironed out. Mm-hmm. But I think that you make a lot of really interesting points on um, kind of that that progression and that the way that. Um, you want that to go and that love outweighing fear. Um, so after you die, what else do you want? Oh boy, after I die. 
know. Like, and when I'm in the, it'll depend. I mean, it'll depend on a lot of ifs, like or like what, like what it'll be like to be a part of the collective consciousness. Like what, I mean, I can say what I want now for after I die, but I don't know what I will want after I die. You know what I mean? Like those are two, two, like you can. Those are two ways to look at the same question. Um, that are that are vast like one is like a really big question mark and the other one is like uh like i can i can just spout stuff but it's like who knows what i really want after i die you know um so i don't know i i think internet doing really cool stuff technology doing cool stuff i think if like civilization and the way humans interact with each other i want it to be different I think it's very. It needs to be different for us to go forward. Um, I think, but it will be different. It will be different when love outweighs fear, because now there's a lot of fear in the way human interacts with each other, and there's no, there's very little empathy. There's a lot of lack of emotion, but there's not a lot of positive emotion, and that's like a, a lack of emotion is almost significantly worse than any than, than than just fear. Like it'd be like you know, be like it'd be co- like y- there's a lot of. Like when an earthquake happens, when there's a fire, when there's a war, and there's refugees. If you're a refugee, like those kind of fear-based, painful experiences that are highly traumatic, highly painful, they bond people together. They like bring people together. People will like the 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 stockbroker and the janitor will both like bail water out of a sinking ship together. You know, they they'll do it. It doesn't matter who got an education where. It doesn't matter who called who a nigger it does it's just it is and th- those powerful painful experiences are that aw- they're they can be awesome but like a lack of anything like a like a steady just zero like you can get so uh like so apathetic so just like eh, just uh just, just let me just throw all this stuff away because I, I don't know just i don't have any emotion towards this stuff so like whatever it's like that's almost worse and it's like i'd rather have i'd rather be on the fear side of the coin than have no coin at all agreed and i was kind of thinking of um energy and mm-hmm. and thinking of physics um in that at, at zero obviously you're not going to have any movement you're not going to have any uh, potential whereas if you have either negative or positive energy inserted into a system mm-hmm. something's going to happen mm-hmm. especially if you put a whole bunch of other ones if you put, <laughs> yeah, there are going to be a lot of variables mm-hmm. but with nothing there's no there's no possibility there is no future there's mm-hmm. there's nothing exactly. um so it's it's really an an interesting thing um so with with that uh, it's it's definitely been a little while. We've um, seen the chickens come and go, I think, <laughs> twice. Um, so folks have been listening this far, and they probably think, man, this Eugene mm. is some guy. Aw, you. And they would definitely be right. <laughs> but if you had, um, and you do have now at the end, couple of minutes um what would you say to them what would you say to the people out on the other side of this great divide what would you say or to a younger eugene or or a future eugene or the collective conscious practice practice regularly intentionally mindfully and don't take any days off and it doesn't matter what you're practicing 
just that you're practicing for the sake of practice, not for the outcome, not for what it will look like, but for the, the simple act of honing your practice. Practice. And whether you're practicing the didgeridoo or slacklining or love or basket weaving, um, the simple act of practicing will make you more mindful. It will um, give you a reason to be and finding your practice the way that your practice can affect the world is easy once you have practiced and you have a practice but if you don't practice anything if you don't have any jewel if you don't if you can't bring that jewel of yourself of your consciousness out into the world then you can't change the world so just practice and with that thank you very much Thank you for listening and thank you for your attention. I hope you enjoyed this interview. You can find more like them at iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, but quietly I prefer iTunes because there you can you can leave a rating or a review or you can subscribe. And these numbers and metrics, they help others, other mindful, intelligent, awesome, probably attractive individuals like yourself. Uh, they help them find the podcast by bringing it up in the ratings. So please consider leaving a rating, a review, or subscribing. It helps me out a whole lot. It helps the project out a whole lot. And for more about myself, Eugene Kim, please consider checking out MNMWA.com, the umbrella project that encompasses this podcast and long-form Sundays, my weekly reflections on life through the lens of mindfulness. Again, that is M-N-M-W-O-D. MNMWA.com or Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day. Thank you again for your attention. Thank you again for your time. And I hope you'll tune in next week for another interview.